This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, Oro was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to create a rehab facility that helps addicts and alcoholics by using compassion and connection rather than control. What an amazing idea. They have thousands and thousands and thousands of hours or decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure that when you're kicking drugs, that the detox is as comfortable as possible, which is crucial when you're kicking heroin or meth or pills or alcohol or anything. A good detox is a good detox. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Fucking sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, and of course, my favorite, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're in sunny Southern California or you're willing to get there, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. They're incredibly high rated in all of the publications. I read in Newsweek, they were like top five in the world. Everyone that I know that has been to Oro had a good experience. So check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. I don't know if you're seeing all the Sober Buddy challenges I'm actually out in the world doing, but I love the Your Sober Buddy app. It's got a free tracker. So go to YourSoberBuddy.com, download the free tracker, and boast about your clean time. It's also an amazing app just to help you stay sober. Or if you're in the beginning of your recovery, it offers a million tips, pointers, and has challenges to help keep you on the good foot. Check it out at the App Store or the Google Play Store or check it out at YourSoberBuddy.com. And remember, the tracker is free. Get it and post. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our good friends at Soberlink. Each and every person in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for recovery. Maybe it's a husband, wife, daughter, son, mom, dad, best friend, colleague, job, hobby, or just yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery, we're all in this together. On Dopey, our mission includes building a strong community, the importance of staying connected, and working to break the stigma, plus other dumb shit. And that's why we've partnered with Soberlink, to expand and strengthen our community even further. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. Chris used it for years, which is why I feel so close to Soberlink. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip or a relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help rebuild trust and faster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery through an online forum where people can read and share their recovery stories. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at www.soberlink.com dopey. Chris used to use Soberlink during the show and transmit the results to his family. Use Soberlink. Go to www.soberlink.com dopey right now. We have a new sponsor. Very exciting stuff. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by a book. It is called Thanks for Letting Me Share. It's by Stephen McDonald, a member of the Dopey Nation. 
It is for you or anyone you know who is in recovery or struggling with the disease of addiction and alcoholism. Thanks for letting me share contains 368 quotes heard from recovering addicts and alcoholics. They are profound, funny, cringeworthy, memorable, helpful, and powerful. They will allow you to reflect, remember, and reassess your recovery. Thanks for letting me share is broken up into three parts. Getting here, staying here, and higher power. Order your copy right now. It's available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook on Amazon, Barnes & Noble's, Kobo, iTunes, and Audible.com. All the proceeds for Thanks for Letting Me Share are used to buy more books and send to rehabs across the United States. We can only keep what we have by giving it away. It's an amazing book. Thanks for Letting Me Share. Order yours now. And finally, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Mobilize Recovery. It is a nonprofit organization, and it is near and dear to my heart. Their mission is to help end overdose and addiction in America. There's a way for everyone to get involved, and there is no cost. There is no hidden agenda. Mobilize Recovery is all about us, our community, and what we can do together to inspire recovery solutions across the United States. Ryan Hampton set it up. He's on a bus traveling right now. Here's a little bit from him. Hey everybody, this is Ryan Hampton, recovery advocate and founder of Mobilize Recovery. And I'm jumping on with Dopey today because we need you to help end overdose and addiction and inspire solutions for recovery across the United States. This September, the nonprofit initiative Mobilize Recovery is launching a national bus tour in partnership with iHeartMedia and Google. And we want to learn what your community your organization, and your projects are doing to mobilize for change. Help us map the journey across the country. Learn more today at mobilizerecovery.org and submit your ideas to us. There's so many ways for you to get involved and to help us highlight the recovery experience that is so unique in different regions across all 50 states. Go to mobilizerecovery.org to learn more and to help us map this journey. And I hope we get to meet so many of you this coming September during National Recovery Month. Before we start the show, I just wanted to mention something really important that I planned on mentioning in the show, but I didn't mention in the show, which is that DopeyCon tickets are going on sale to the general public on Monday. So if you're in the Patreon, scoop them up now. We're running out of tickets. Buy your tickets this weekend. If not, and you don't want to join Patreon, buy them on Monday. We're having a free Dopey Patreon Zoom to the general public. It is in the Dopey Zoom room. It is Sunday night at 8.30 Eastern. Dopey Nation Zoom is out there and it's rocking. And I just want to give a shout out to Taylor who got clean in the Dopey Zoom. She's got like 120 days. Fucking Wick got clean in the Dopey Zoom. Scott Wick. Uh, who else got clean in the Dopey Zoom? Maybe Stephanie got clean via the Dopey Zoom and just celebrated a couple of years. So like the Dopey Zoom is happening and, it, and it's helping people. And the Dopey Zoom needs facilitators so if you want to be a facilitator in dopey nation zoom 
go to the meeting. There's like 26 meetings a week. The password is eight. I'm sorry. The address is 804-300-586. The password is toodles, all lowercase. Buy Dopey Gear at dopeypodcast.com. New design is coming out. I swear to God, the Forever in Debt design should be coming out soon. But mostly, buy tickets for DopeyCon. If you're on Patreon, you have a couple more days before they're released. Brandon Novak is confirmed. Andy Roy is confirmed. Dr. Drew will probably be there. A couple other people. Surprises. My dad, Linda. Who knows who's going to be at DopeyCon? But I know I'll be there, and I know... um, A lot of you will be there because a lot of people bought tickets. So get your tickets. They are on sale for Patreon now for regular on Monday. Check it out. Anyway, enough of this. Here's the show. Well, I got a couple more seconds before the show. So I'll tell you to buy Dopey Candles too. You go to NorthAvCandles.com slash collections slash Dopey. Buy Dopey Candles. What else am I supposed to tell you to do? I have to tell you to buy, come to DopeyCon. DopeyCon is going to be a magical time. So come to DopeyCon, join Patreon, subscribe to YouTube, but just do whatever the fuck you want. Here's the show. Enough about me. Here's the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. Thank God we are back in Manhattan. I'm joined by the lovely and talented, uh, strung out author, formerly elite equestrian, and unlicensed advice columnist, Erin <laughs> Carr, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And how is the summer going? It's going. I mean, I just got back from L.A., as you know. I was there for two weeks, which felt very long. And with, I'm really with glad. With your mom. Be, with my mom, at my mom's. I think it's too long as an adult in my 40s to be staying with a parent. I understand. We're going to be staying at my dad's. And, uh, you know, I love my dad. I, I, I just, love my mom. <laughs> I don't, I just, I, I get weird. Yeah. Like I get weird. Like, like I know how to parent. My, I take care of my kids right. and all that. You know, I don't know. I just, there's a lot of weird shit that happens and it's easy. Does your mom ever does? I mean, my dad never really alludes to the fact that I was strung out or that I was an addict or none of that shit ever pops up. Does it, I mean, does your mom ever take you to task for anything from the past at this point? No. I mean, this is all like, I mean, that's all like 19 plus year, 19 and a half years ago. I know. That's why I'm asking. So no, no. I mean, we do talk, things from the past come up sometimes, but like she's not giving me grief about them in present day. And you weren't like a classic fuck up. I was a classic fuck right. up. <laughs> and my dad like likes to you know, relish in, cause I also am sort of a little bit of a current fuck up in a, you know, I'm not, you're not, I'm not, but I still, I still carry the baggage of right. fuck uppery because of my style. I'm so laid back. I seem like I could be a fuck up, but I, I mean, I stole jewelry from, from her. my mother and sold it and pawned. I mean, I did some fucked up things. Does it's she not ever, like I didn't, does she ever reclaim that stuff? Oh, we, t- I mean, it comes up occasionally. I mean, especially because there were things that I sold that were, from my grandmother that, you know, I I couldn't get back. Did, does she ever, oh, it'd be really nice to have my mother's pearls. No. (laughs) I really love them. She never says anything like that. No, there was like that, that, uh, jade pendant, but. The jade pendant. I know. See, I couldn't tell the difference between my mother's jewelry, like what was good and what wasn't good. I figured Mm. it was all garbage. Right. Um, but like I knew like there were diamond rings, but if I had taken one of my mother's diamond rings, like, 
it would just would I, I could ask for money. I could be like, I need money. Right. I wasn't gonna like the the wrath of my mother would have been like insanity. I mean, I think I took things that I thought she wouldn't notice were missing right away. Like the jade pendant. Yes. What but was then, the jade pendant shaped like? It was sort of like a uh it was kind of like a natural teardrop shape. Like it it was kind of teardrop shaped, but it was also like natural looking edges. I wish it was a monkey and it would be the jade monkey pendant. <laughs> but you know, Years after that, I was already sober. Something went missing. I don't even remember what it was. And I was so worried that she would think it was me. Right. And it wasn't. And I remember that happened once with my dad, too. Like, he was missing, like, an envelope of cash. Wow. And I knew that he thought it was me. And then he finally found it. And then I was like, Phew. How long were you sober? <clears throat> a couple years. What's up with the envelope of cash? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's how he used that's how he rolled i guess nice <laughs> because he would go buy antiques he my dad was a still is like he slowed down a little bit but like always would buy a lot of antiques so he would often have cash to barter to mm, bargain i mean just to go like buy stuff yeah but you can get a better deal with cash yes. be like i'll give you 370 dollars instead yes. of 600 dollars. yes i only have this much cash on me right He'd be like, this envelope only has $10,000 in small bills. <laughs> well, the envelope of cash going missing, yes. Like, uh, my dad always leaves money on the cleaning table, mm -hmm. or on the, on the dining room table for Maurice, mm -hmm. the cleaning lady. Mm -hmm. And every time I see it, I think about taking it. Every, it just passes through your mind. Yeah. Every, uh, wow. I, I, I think in the old days, I might have done that a few right. times and acted as though I didn't. Or maybe I never took it, and maybe I always wanted to take it. Right. Last week... Uh, was a banner show for Dopey. That's my segment. Yes. Um, it was a powerful episode. Well, it was uh, four years since Chris died. It was, it's, it's, it's rough for me that week. Um, yeah. Not, not the memory. I mean, the memory is part of it, but it's the, it's the figuring out the show part, mm -hmm. which is like a nuisance mm -hmm. on top of the grief and figuring out. And then like, I always wind up playing the same clips I always play mm -hmm. because I get like, I'm not prepared. And so like, but I thought Don's story was rough. Don's so, fucking relapse story is rough. I'm so glad that he came on there and talked about it. And I'm really glad that he's not dead and that, you know, I mean, I think he talked about it in a really honest and open way, and it was really compelling. Well, there's uh, absolutely, and, and Don is a friend of mine, and uh, he loves Dopey, and he loves the Dopey Nation, and I know that that story is very helpful for the audience. Absolutely. And I think and it was helpful for him because he heard from people in the audience, yeah. and he feels, like, resituated into, right. nestled into our community, which is... Nice. It's because yeah. like, like we had talked about it. There's a ton of people relapsing out there, a ton of people. Right. And then some people come back and other people don't get to come back. And that's um, the reality of mm -hmm. it. And I got a voicemail um, that I really it was a real classic kind of dopey voicemail. It wasn't like a maudlin. It was a real like using <laughs> voicemail. Right. And uh, but it references Chris's death. So I won't play it. OK. What's up, Dave? I just wanted to send you a voice memo. <laughs> At the time where we all remember Chris's life, um, Chris died on my birthday, July 24th, so I'm not sure what that means, but I do know that I felt a, a connection with Chris. He said when he was young, he would uh, stay up all night reading uh, 
drug stories, you know, trip reports on Arrowhead, and I can relate to that. Also, he ordered a lot of research chemicals on the dark web and knew everything about those, so I also did the same. Anyways, I'll get into it here. Um, just, uh, I'm currently not sober, although I stay away from hard drugs mainly. Recently, I was at a bachelor party in Las Vegas, and my one friend was there who is really into fentanyl. Uh, I saw him kind of sneak away into the bathroom, you know, and I, I knew what was going on, and I begged him to tag along, and he obliged. And uh, I'd never seen anything like this, but his tolerance was just so obscene that he would load, like, five of those fake 30s onto the foil and shape the foil in, like, almost like a little cereal bowl, which I'd never seen. I don't know if you'd call it that, but he shaped the foil to hold all five where he could smoke all five at once. And, you know, I thought that was pretty crazy, but I let him know I was just going to do one. And uh, um, so he said it was my turn for one. And then I, you know, I don't know if I was tipsy on alcohol or what the deal was, but I decided to do some quick math in my head and came to the conclusion that if I was going to smoke one for eight or ten seconds, that if I just rip all five of these i only have to hit it for like two seconds and there's something like that so you know the math checks out and that's what i did and i i just put the flame under all five of them and hit it for a couple seconds blew out a pretty big cloud and you know uh i survived but anyways it just uh i think later that night we ordered a hooker to the room but when she got there she ended up costing like a thousand dollars so we kicked her out and then you know the next day i ate some shrooms went clubbing so although i survived i probably won't get so lucky next time and uh i just uh really appreciate you dave because although i don't go to meetings right now dopey is my meetings and it honestly has probably kept me out of a lot of situations like that so uh appreciate all you do dave bye-bye all right now i know this is going to be very controversial of me First of all, I love that voicemail. Like that's yeah. that's a classic fucking dopey voicemail. Uh, he calls himself Jay. Thank you, Jay. First thing I want to say is dopey shouldn't be a meeting for anybody. Just want to make that clear. <laughs> we are not in any way a, a replacement for a meeting at all. Jay, you should go to a fucking meeting. How he, he's like he's like I'm not going to meetings because he's tipsy, fucking ordering whores and smoking fentanyl. It's like of course you're not going to meetings, Jay. Um, I love that story though. I want to read the email too before before. Well, first, what's your comment? You're just scared for poor Jay because he's smoking five. He also has a voice. His voice is just like um, Greg in Succession. He sounds oh, like yeah. he sounds like Greg in Succession. I need to catch up on that show. You never caught up on it. I am not caught up on the it. The new season, I think, was the best because one. because I was waiting for, I was waiting to watch like the end of season two with my husband, and then like he never wanted to watch it. I just need to watch it by myself. Yep. Anyway, what did you, what's your take on Jay? Uh, man, uh, be careful. I mean, I just I had this discussion. I think I told you earlier when I was in LA. Like I like I'm so lucky that fentanyl was not around in that way when I was using. Yeah, hold on, Jay. Be careful. Forget my first reaction. Be careful, Jay. You could kill you. And it's yeah. like I don't. I, maybe there's something and wrong if you're, with me. I guess if you're gonna do it, if you think you might do it, like at least get some naloxone 
to have on hand. You have some Narcan on deck, Jay. You got Narcan on deck. One good thing, Jay, is you're getting a pair of dopey socks because that's a classic (laughs) dopey voicemail. Can you stick some naloxone in the socks? Maybe we should put some Narcan in in, in the socks. But we're in a new partnership with Namaste at Home Dad Mm -hmm. who's in a partnership with some unknown Narcan fentanyl source. So she's claimed what do she's. You mean fentanyl source. I mean, a, not a fentanyl source. I mean, a fentanyl test strip right. source. Yeah, you know, forget what I just said. Not a fentanyl source. <laughs> a fentanyl test strip source. And I don't know where she's getting it from, but put it like this, Jay. We're gonna get you some Narcan with the dopey socks. It's yes. gonna come separately. Maybe it'll come from uh, Namaste. Maybe it'll come from uh, Tracy Helton. Yep. Maybe it'll come from Austin. You're getting naloxone, Jay. I'm gonna read his email. <laughs> He says, is this any good? The answer is yes. Fucking great. Thank you. Uh, But now he says, please be honest. I can probably make it more entertaining if you need. (laughs) Well, I should have read this before I played it. I know I left out a lot of funny details. Fuck, Jay. I like funny details, but I didn't want to make it too long. It was only my third take, so it could be better. It was great. It was great. Also, I actually have a ton of funny drug stories. I've been meaning to send in my first voice memo for over three years now. But maybe, as you say, I broke the seal. Do I say that? I don't know. I maybe guess. I do. And maybe I will start it sending seems, them in. It's kind of sexual, isn't it? I never saw the seal as a sexual seal. I always saw breaking the seal like the seal of a bottle of pills oh, yeah, I guess or you're right. a package. Yeah. Why is the seal sexual for you? I don't know. I don't What's know. What's the seal you're talking about? I, we don't need to discuss okay. it. <laughs> Also, funny story. Were you talking about a hymen? I guess that's what I meant. That's I don't even know why. That was the first the hymen. <laughs> that was my my unfiltered thought. Okay, um, that's good. <laughs> also, fun. Ask Aaron why when we say broke the seal, do you think of hymens? I don't know because it's, it's like de-virginizing. That's like somebody. my fucked up <laughs> stuff. Clearly. Well, listen, I I, I support <laughs> you. I, I I support your fucked up thinking. Um, I I think of uh. I think I think of pills mm-hmm. or like cookies or ice cream. Right. Breaking the seal. Uh, I think. Yeah. I, think that's I mean, what that, I think ma- that makes sense. I think. <laughs> um, also, funny story. But when I first went into detox, I was on. This is a good story already. I was on too much LSD and research chemical benzos and disassociatives that they turned me away and sent me to a psych ward. There, I thought it was a good idea to change my name to Jay when I originally went by RJ. My mind was so messed up, I thought changing my identity would change my drug addiction problem. Everyone called me Jay for over two years while I was in the program because I rolled with it. When I left the program, I took back RJ, but you can refer to my addiction persona, Jay, if you refer to me in the show. The reason I thought it was funny because you have a fentanyl Jay on the show and technically my story is about a fentanyl Jay. Well, Jay, thank you for contributing. This is great. You see how happy I am? I know you are. You've made him very, very happy. <laughs> Seriously. I, I love, uh, I love a good story. Jay, you're fucking using though. You're out there. You're not, you're not in working any kind of program recovery. Jay, <laughs> new fentanyl Jay. Which, you know, no judgment, but let's get you some naloxone. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, Jay, this is all I have to say. No judgment, but don't think that you're like, you're not using. Yeah. Jay knows he's using. Them. Yeah. He hasn't said that yeah, he's yeah. not. Oh, I'm going to take that out. I don't want to say that. <laughs> I'm actually just going to leave it out. All right. There's big news. First news is this week, DopeyCon tickets are going on sale to the general public. Yay. Did that play? Hold on. No. <laughs> um, in other news, 
support Dopey Patreon, even though my big plan to get a lot of people to join Patreon to buy DopeyCon tickets kind of worked. A bunch of people joined. Yeah. We've sold a lot of tickets. That's awesome. So people, you better get rushing out to buy tickets. We're going to run out of tickets in a second. And we have, a, I have a prize to give away for Patreon. All right. Well, what members. is it? So... I run a workshop with another writer, Lily Danziger, um, called Writing and Publishing Addiction Narratives. I know that there are a lot of people in the Dopey Nation who are writers. Last time I did the workshop, I gave away two scholarships to Dopey Nation members. And this time I'm going to give away two scholarship spots to Dopey Patreon What a members. treat. What a treat this for the patrons. $125 value. <laughs> It's August 6th via Zoom from 1 to 3 Eastern time. So you have to be able to make that specific time. But it's an amazing, we had such a good time last time. We like sold out and ended up adding a couple more spots. Um, but it's an intimate group. You don't have to share work. It's really about discussing about sort of um, inherent problems in writing and publishing addiction narratives and how to approach them. It sounds like and I really some, need this workshop. Yeah. I need this <laughs> maybe, workshop. Maybe Dave needs the scholarship spot. So so sign up for Patreon to get the scholarship spot. Also, I just put up a video on Patreon where I was in Washington Square Park and there's these new fangled drug dealers oh, yeah. with drug stands and I interview one and he shows all of his wares. Uh, it's all weed, right? No, he also has mushrooms. Oh, right. And right. like, uh, but he has this thing. Where you should watch it on Patreon. Yeah, I but, saw I saw it, but, but I haven't watched it yet. Okay, it's this thing. <laughs> Definitely watch it on Patreon. I will. It's a, it's it's like a, it's a real uh, experience in the park with a legal drug dealer. Uh, also, subscribe to Dopey YouTube. Like, yes. just do it. Yes. You know, maybe you'll see something you like. There's some good shit on there. <laughs> and I'm about to hit the streets. I just bought this uh, fancy love phone mm -hmm. microphone and mm -hmm. i'm gonna we're gonna hit the streets hardcore oh, i like that i like that you were in washington square park because that's my hood i feel like i'm gonna be there a lot like i'm gonna try to do some interactive stuff with a lot of different people in the street that is the plan um now before we have an exciting guest we have an author yes a journalist uh ex-con mm -hmm. prisoner named carrie blakinger ivy leaguer ivy leaguer <laughs> figure skater She's coming up on the show, but before we get to it, I have an unusual story to tell you, which is, oh my God, the cat is gone. Oh. <laughs> Hallelujah. The cat is gone. <laughs> and there's been so many instances over the past, I think we've had the cat for two years, and, and I think what we did wrong was we went away like a month after we got the cat, and we had my Linda's mom come and feed the cat. Mm -hmm. And around then the cat started spraying our bed Ugh. and we had to start closing our door. And then soon after, and then maybe she started spraying. And so if, and if we ever left the door open, she sprayed the bed and she started spraying whatever was on the floor. Then she started spraying Susan's bed. Ugh. Then she started spraying whatever was on the floor in the basement. If we left a towel on the floor, she right. would spray it. And we tried every homeopathic cure. We right. tried everything. Every we, we even gave the cat Xanax. We got mm -hmm. liquid Xanax. We got liquid cat Prozac. We right. gave this cat everything. <laughs> um, I was ready to kill the cat. Um, 
but Linda didn't want me to kill the cat. No, no, nobody wanted you to kill the I cat. I have a shovel <laughs> that I was going <laughs> to no, beat the cat with. terrible. And then, and then dig a hole in mm-hmm. the backyard and bury the cat. But uh, somehow we found an alter. The cat sprayed Nora's room. She never would spray Nora's oh. room. And Nora's, the door doesn't close in Nora's room. Right. It's like there's a door problem. And she finally started spraying Nora's room. Oh. So we decided that we need to get, the cat's got to go. Yeah. And we found this amazing guy named Chris mm-hmm. who runs a cat sanctuary Aww. in Long Island uh-huh. called Happy Cat Sanctuary. I love that. Happy Cat's a crazy place. There's like 300 cats there. Mm-hmm. There's like three different outdoor sections for Happy Cat. Mm-hmm. Inside, there are these decks built on top oh, of decks yeah. so the cats can run up. There's posts that are 30 feet in the air. Right. There's wooden owls to prevent the hawks from attacking the right. cats. And this guy, Chris, is super dedicated. Happy Cat is a nonprofit, no kill adoption agency, trap, neuter, return, facilitator, and sanctuary in Suffolk County, Long Island. They specialize in rescue and rehabilitation of at risk cats, including cats that have been shot at, hoarded, abused, mm. neglected, and targeted by gangs for use as bait in the dog fighting rings. Wow, it's fucked up. Ugh. Happy Cat Sanctuary has saved thousands of cats from abuse, neglect, torture, and death, rehomed hundreds of cats, and reduced the feral population by thousands with uh, trap, neuter, uh, release. Release. So I want you guys to support Happy Cat. Their website is happycatsanctuary.com. The dude there is a fucking saint, Chris. He saved our home from the cat. And the fucked up thing, Aaron, you, what was the first thing you asked me? I said, are you happy the cat is gone? And what did I say? No, I I'm miss sad. The, I miss the cat. <laughs> I feel bad. I, I miss, I, it's like, I love that cat. I hated the cat, right. but she was there, you know, like in the morning she was there. I like made sure she ate. I like, I like, I don't know. I hung out with the cat. Right. Like I, I hated but, that cat. I yeah. hated the cat. The cat ruined our house. We, we spent thousands of dollars right. on new rugs, and deep cleaning carpets, deep cleaning furniture. And now the cat's gone and I should be happy the cat's gone. But I, I, I guess part of me is happy the cat is gone. You'll, you know what? You're sad right now, but ultimately this was better for, for your family and for the cat. And for the cat health yeah i mean the cat would be <laughs> the like cat's longevity the cat was gonna get locked in the attic right which was 100 degrees right. the basement which is not no bueno right uh which she didn't like and once we locked her in the basement there's two guinea pigs in the basement so she had company but uh she fucking sprayed the whole basement and and like it was she not did, good she was not that's not a happy cat well now she is with the other happy, she is cats a happy cat <laughs> at chris's sanctuary if you're an animal lover Please check out happycatsanctuary.com. And um, let's get to Carrie Blakinger. Let's do it. And I'm joined by figure skating legend, (laughs) author, drug addict, and uh, journalist, Carrie Blakinger. Welcome to the show. I love the way you introduce me. (laughs) I like introducing. Do you miss figure skating? Ooh, you know, so yes and no. Like, I I miss it in that when you get good enough, there's a point at which you feel, mm, this is going to sound cheesy, like at one with the ice, or like you are working with the ice instead of skating on it. And it sort of feels more natural than walking, and you know, almost like breathing. Um, and, 
yeah, I, I miss that. But at the same time, I don't, people always ask, do I skate recreationally now? And I don't, I, I mean, it's been years. I, my body remembers how it felt when I was really good and I could do triples. And um, I am content to remember it like that instead of go back and, you know, struggle with things that were easy and just, um, it would be disappointing for it to actually feel different than the way that my body remembers it, you know? Totally. I mean, I think it's funny, like, uh, I try, I'm trying to write and writing doesn't come that naturally to me. Doing the podcast comes incredibly naturally to me. Doing drugs came pretty naturally to me. Do you find that writing feels anything like figure skating in that you can do what you want in the same way? No, no. I, um, I think the, the, the spot that this, the itch that it scratches for me is just that I am really obsessive and intense. And, you know, I, skating was my whole life and then drugs were my whole life. And now it's work. Um, fortunately I have a job that I'm passionate about, so it, it all works out. But, um, I don't, I mean, I don't know that any professional writer says writing comes easily. Right. Um, that's usually a bad sign. Actually, if you, if you say it comes really easily, like, you know, a lot of, you've got some work to do that. Yeah. A lot of, you know, people who write for a living will be like, Oh, okay. Well then. (laughs) And, and, uh, when, is there any kind of connection in your mind between skating and drug addiction? Um, I mean, I think there are parallels. And did one and did skating? I mean, one of the things that I thought was really compelling in the book is the eating stuff around skating. Like you have to be, and, and the control around eating and skating, right? Isn't control built into those two things? Yeah, totally. I mean, yes, I had, you know, pretty intense eating disorders for a lot of the time that I was skating. And I mean, I think that that sort of, you know, self-harm and addictive tendencies like that has some clear overlap with later drug use. Um, But, you know, I, I don't think I realized at the time how much it was you know, it's not only about control. I feel like that's really trite. Like therapists love to say eating disorders are about control. And that's true. That's part of it. But I mean, there's, I think there's more to it than that. But I don't think I realized until much later as an adult looking back and uh, understanding how much control you lack as a teen. Because that's all you know as a teen. But like now as an adult, I can see how little agency, you know, your average teen has. Plus my parents were pretty strict and skating was you know, pretty intense and restrictive. So I had a very controlled life. And looking back, it's easier to see how um, I would have reached towards, you know, eating disorders as a thing that I could control. Sure. And like addicts and alcoholics often have the now I have arrived moment in using. Do you think, you know what I mean? Like where they like, they get, we get high, I got high. And I was like, finally, I know how I want to feel kind of thing. Do you think you had that now I have arrived moment with skating where you're like, this is who I want to be? So, or is that a stupid question? Well, like, so, so yes, <laughs> you're kind of looking at me like it's a stupid well, question. Well, I mean, I don't think I thought of it in those terms, but here's the thing with skating. Like, even when it got to the point that I was like, this is, um, I don't know. This sounds dramatic, but like this be is dramatic. Sort of That's the fine. best part of being human is this feeling is doing this sport you know, and 
even when I got to that point, like it was not sort of like, oh, this is, I've arrived, this is how I always want to feel, this is who I want to be, because I knew that in skating, there's, there's an age limit. I mean, not an official one, but realistically, you can't be competitive past a certain age. What's the age, age limit? I mean, when I was growing up, there was a 23-year-old who's competed at nationals, and we referred to her as the old lady. Right. So, you know, at 17, you know, that like you know that seems like the end is near right and I mean it's also a sport where for as long as I could remember there's always someone you know younger and better behind you and then of course for women there's also just the reality of like your body's going to develop and that you become less aerodynamic like it makes jumps harder to develop yeah that is tough because that means you're on this crazy timetable Yes. And, and, and also the weight, you know, being a certain weight is like part of being able to do a triple jump, right? To be, I mean, you described yourself as like perfectly like the musculature, like you were just like, you, what were you eating? Like describe the eating disorder a bit. Cause I remember like it was, it was very intense. Yeah. And at the same time, there was a certain level of pride in it. Like, cause you were just like giving yourself as little food as you could and you were super strong and you were like, I was an engine that was a muscle. Well, I think a lot of people who are in, you know, certain kinds of active eating disorders take some pride in it. Uh, I mean, in the end result, right? Um, so I don't, I don't think that part was uncommon, but um, you know, I don't know. I ate. Um, oh, it was carrots. I ate a lot of carrots. A lot of carrots. Enough carrots that I turned orangish, which I know everyone would be like, "No, that's just the thing your parents tell you." No, it, it can really happen. It was like around um, the corners of my mouth and like the backs of my knuckles, like it was like slightly orangish. And you know, and I drank a lot of coffee. And I don't think either of these things are uncommon for eating disorder behaviors. At a very young age, coffee. I mean, middle school, high school. If I mean, I have a daughter who's in middle school, and if she's like, Daddy, let me get a black coffee, I'd freak out. You know what I mean? That, I would not be comfortable with her drinking coffee. Um, when did drugs jump in? After my skating career fell apart. When I was, um, I guess, in my junior year of high school, um, I did. by that point I was doing pairs, which is where the guy throws you around and it looks all dangerous and shit. And... Um, we competed in nationals twice, and after our second nationals, he said he wanted to branch out and find another partner. And at that point, I just fell apart. I, um, you know, I describe it now as like, it's like if you got divorced and fired from your job and also every job forever. Because, you know, in a sport where there's so many more women than men, he could find another partner immediately. And for me, it could be like weeks or months or never. And as weeks went by and it became apparent, I was probably going to have to take a season off in this sport where you know that there's a, a realistic age limit. Um, I just, I fell apart. And that summer, um, I went to Harvard Summer School and my parents thought this was a good solution. Like this would be a thing that would get me restarted in the right direction, like sort of stop moping around and being, you know, depressed all the time but uh, oh and there was a rink nearby so I could like walk to the rink and still train and instead it meant that at the point that I was already starting to unravel I suddenly had 
no supervision and I'd gone from this, you know, strict, very, um, you know, very intense schedule to sort of being with just normal kids. Normal and, you're on, kids. and you're on your own. Right. And I'd really never also been around, like I'd never spent a lot of time with just regular teenagers, you know? And so anyways, I, I went to Harvard summer school and I think I like, I think I like smoked pot once and, you know, did ecstasy and probably went right to heroin right after that. What was the first time, like, how did it go from pot to ecstasy to heroin? That's a little bit unusual. And I like, know it is. How did, how did it even happen? I was just in a really self-destructive place. I, this in was, Harvard? In Cambridge? Massachusetts? Is that where it was? It meant, yes, but mentally I meant, I meant in myself. I was in a very self-destructive place. I'm not saying that Cambridge is an inherently destructive place. <laughs> I, I get it, but I'm just saying I want to... Although I, I do think the winners are fucking awful. <laughs> I like to hear, like, you're a kid and you're smoking weed and then you're, like, taking ecstasy. Where does heroin show up? Did you seek it out? Were you getting dopey ecstasy? I was not getting dopey ecstasy, but I was, I mean, yes, I was seeking it out. I was, I, I was, again, like, I was really, I, I just wanted, I basically just wanted to die and didn't actually want to do it. So I was seeking out the sort of most destructive alternatives. And I did whatever was available. So that happened to be pot and then, you know, happened to find an opportunity to do ecstasy and then, um, you know, and then found heroin. Like it, it, it wasn't some accidental slide, you know, down into heroin. Like that was, a, that was intentional self-destruction. How old were you? I would have been 17 at that point. And do you remember like where you got the first dope from? Yeah, I mean, it's been a long time, but I'm still not going to rat the dude out. I don't want any names. I <laughs> want I want scenario. Give me the scenario. Um, so I've been hanging We can call him Flacco. <laughs> so I've Unless that was his name, actually. It was not his it name. It was Flacco Rubenstein of Cambridge. <laughs> it was a very generic white guy name, but it was not Flacco Rubenstein. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, so tell me what happened. Um, yeah, so I mean, I've been hanging out in the in the pit in Harvard Square, which was at that point, like, I don't know, right where the T-stop comes up, and that's where all the punks and, like, the homeless punk kids hung out and stuff, and I'd been hanging out with some of them. Were you punky? I became it some over time, but, I mean, it, when I when I went to Cambridge that summer, I had been a figure skater, so... Because I can see you now. Now, I don't know how old you are, but you have, a, you have a certain ex-crusty punk look about you now. But I know you weren't some crusty punk then. Because you have half your head shaved. She's got the nose ring. She's got the lip ring. She's got multiple earrings. I've got, I've got a lot of great tattoos also, which is how I spent my book money, by the way. On tattoos? Yeah. Serious tattoos. Yeah. Fucking legs, tattoos. legs tatted with the dragon. Arm tatted with a skull and <laughs> spider, but so, but you were not a crusty punk. I mean, not at the start of it, but I got there. Did you get to be crusty? Um, oh, you had dreads, but that, I thought that was a, a prison was thing. Much later, yeah. I I don't think I was crusty. I actually got um, I actually had people. There's not in any pictures not... in the book, which I that's one thing I wanted pictures in the book. 
But uh, that's another thing. Right? Forgive I mean, me. I bet I bet I have some on my phone here, but this really doesn't help your listeners. No, but maybe I can dictate. But okay, <laughs> so you're at you're at Harvard Square and you see Flacco Rubenstein. What's the story? Um, we would have known each. I mean, I don't remember some of the details here, but like we would have known each other through this circle of you know punks that were hanging out in Harvard Square, and um, I don't know. I I got some from him. I don't remember if he fronted it or if I bought it, um, but I do remember you. So, you were like, I want to get heroin. Yes, and I do remember doing my first line off the back of my copy of Sons and Lovers, which had been my summer reading for my senior year of high school. Um, and yeah, I did not finish that year's summer reading, needless to say. Right. And were you alone? Um, I don't think so. I think it was with someone else because I think he didn't want to sell to a minor. So we had to have someone else like who was going to be the one who was buying it. But, um, I mean, this was in 2001 or two. So, um, I did like nine years of drugs after that. So you know, you're really stretching the limits of my memory. <laughs> I remember the first time I did heroin, I was in college and I was a stoner and some dude was a musician and he was like, do you guys want to try dope? And I was like, okay. You know, I remember that. Like how, how soon after the first time you did it, were you like, I need to be doing it? I mean, again, like I was really just in a kind of, self-destructive place i was just trying to do whatever i could get my hands on i sure. didn't care how dangerous it was or how questionable the source was um you know it it wasn't about uh it wasn't even so much about numbing or trying to feel the right way it's just like i was actively trying to destroy myself so that was like the express train to not oblivion, but not existing. Right. Which is different. Right. Like I was, I sought oblivion. I sought the feeling that drugs would give me. You were like, this will kill me. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. I don't think I was quite as, I, I don't think I was quite as clear to myself. I wasn't like saying I want to die, but not yet. Um, but I mean, sometimes I was, you know, um, yeah. So I do think that's part of why some of the early path of my addiction looks a little different than some of the, I don't know, most common trajectories. Sure. I mean, listen, it's, it's drug addiction is a, is a weird thing. And there are some stories that are common and there are some stories that aren't common and like we still you've been through something, I've been through something, a lot of the audience has been through something, and I'm sure people have had experiences that are similar to yours, you know? Yeah, totally. So I think that that will be helpful to somebody. Um, when do you remember getting your first habit? It was a few months later, I was living on the street by that point, and I remember being surprised that I was sick. I thought it was the flu, and then someone else was like, no, that's, that's not the flu. Like, you're dope sick. Um, but not, not seriously. Like, not, like it was a chippy, you know? Um, and then after that, I think I, I eased off a little bit, but it wasn't so much intentional. It's just that I didn't always have 
money. I didn't always have access. I was, you know, homeless. And, and then, you know, went to rehab briefly. And what, I mean, I don't think I actually caught another serious habit until a couple years later. Until after Hootie, until the post Hootie period. <laughs> yes. Um, now you're a journalist. You interview people all the time. Is it weird to be interviewed? So I've gotten a little bit used to that because, um, you know, I end up telling my story a lot. I, one thing that I think journalists do now that they didn't used to do as much, or I don't know, I mean, maybe I don't really have a basis for saying what used to be the case, um, is people talk about their stories a lot. Like I get interviewed about my stories a lot. And often in those interviews, people are intrigued by the fact that I did time and I'm covering prisons. So it often comes up in the course of a lot of the interviews I do about any prisons reporting. Um, but I've also done, I mean, I've done a decent number of podcasts and stuff. And um, I don't know, it's just a story that journalists tend to be interested in, like my very different path to journalism. Right. Life experience path to journalism. Like, and also like when you finally became a journalist, you were like, wow, they're not asking about my, my record and I can write and they want, and I can create and they're going to pay me. It was a fucking amazing job to get out of jail. Yeah. I mean, there are, to be clear, plenty of news outlets that I think wouldn't hire me because of the because of the my felonies. record. Um, I think that's less true than it used to be. But there's definitely a time when more applications would have that box to check on them than is currently the case. Um, and I mean, I think that I suspect that even now that there are some outlets that, you know, nobody needs to background check me now, right? Because I wrote a fucking book. Like it's pretty out there. Um, but I think even now there's there's places that would probably not just be comfortable with that brand of having a felon ex-drug dealer uh, who's very public about it you know um but it's really hard to measure ever how much someone is holding your past against you because you never know what callbacks you didn't get or what jobs didn't consider you because they were like no we don't want someone who's always tweeting about prison or no we don't want someone who has a felony like those those are unknowable things right uh one of my favorite sections of the book was the after the rehab and you were like i'm gonna deal drugs now and not use them period um i think that was it's funny because i know like you know you did you wound up going to jail for selling heroin like it's funny just to even hear you talk about that period because you talk about it very kind of academically and I can sell drugs and I won't do them and making money. Can you walk us through that period? Yeah, so I'd gone to rehab, like I said, after I'd been living on the streets, I went to rehab and, you know, it didn't stick. I was, I, I don't know, I was still just, um, I was just a very unstable person still. I, w I was not in a place where, you know, I'm, I don't fault the rehab. Like, I wasn't in a place where that was going to, like, I wasn't, that wasn't going to happen at that point. And I stayed sober for maybe a year after rehab. And then, you know, I, I wanted to pay for school on my own and not have to be dependent on my parents. Um, and I thought that the good way to do that, well, first was to start working at strip clubs. 
Um, and I did that. And were you a good dancer? So as, a, as a figure skater, you have to dance, right? I mean, it's very different, but what I was good at is that I was athletic and I had a lot of, I know this sounds weird, a lot of upper body strength. You don't expect that from skating, but you know, you have to do a lot of off ice training in the gym and it was pairs that I had been doing. So I had a lot of upper body strength, um, which is good for pole tricks. So I was, I was good at pole tricks. <laughs> um, and you know, and, and then, I mean, that, that was great. That helped me pay for some things. I got my first cell phone that way. Um, and then I also wanted to try to pay for tuition and I thought that selling drugs would be the way to do that. And it was not that long before I started using them, but like different drugs than what I'd done before. Um, I, I did meth that time and then I got into more other drugs and, you know, I mean, it wasn't intentional self destruction entirely like some of that was something that I sort of fell into but I was also still very unstable and I would say that there was at least some pretty strong desire for self-destruction like lurking just under the surface was there a big like drug culture within the stripper community like where you're like this is kind of the scene so like no there wasn't um because the places that I was working like one of them almost all of the other people did not speak English. So um, I had like two friends that I went there with that I knew from college, but I didn't, like, like there wasn't a sort of culture there at those places because we literally just didn't speak the same language. So I remember there being some sort of connection between uh, the strip club and drugs though, right? Wasn't there? Um, yeah, we got, um, I don't remember if I can put this in there, but at one point we got pulled over on the way back and, um, and, and got, I got arrested, but, um, but that was like, I think we'd had the drugs cause there was like, you know, there was like, I don't know, one person that was, might've been one of the people who was driving us there. Like, yeah, there was one person that I think was getting coked, but this was not a big thing. It wasn't another one of the strippers either. I think it was one of the guys that was a regular. Um, but I, um, some of this, I, is so foggy, but like I have these snippets of journals. So there's some parts that like, when I talk about them in interviews, I'm like, I don't know, go fucking refer to the book because I researched it there. Like I had to reinvestigate my own past, right? To be accurate about some of these things. Um, and I called almost everyone I knew that is still alive or that would still talk to me and, you know, interviewed them, fact-checked memories um, and unearthed journals and whatever public records I could find. Um, and yeah, so it's funny because I think that the, even though it's, a memoir and it's memories like it's fact-checked in a way that my actual memories aren't, right you know? no no i get it I, I do this show and i forget everything all the time you did you read the david carr book uh, night of the gun i did not i know he did that but i i don't love reading um addiction memoirs well I don't the thing love reading but the, prison th memoirs the thing the thing about that book is like the whole book is like kind of yeah. like an exercise in fact checking his life because right. he didn't remember anything so it's like you did the same thing but you know what's remarkable like there are some places that are foggy but I was surprised again and again 
by how accurate my memory was, right? I would fact check things and I'd be like, wow, this, this is bullshit. This can't have happened. And then I'd call someone and they're like, no, that, that happened. Yeah. So in that era, in the meth dealing era, you didn't even like the meth, but you were, did you, you were using a lot of it, right? No, I did. I, I liked meth. Okay. Um, but what were your drugs then? You were saying meth, coke. What was the deal? What was I selling? Or was I like? Oh, what was you selling? And what? Yeah, yeah, you were selling I what mean, you were using. I think I was down to try anything, you know, at least once. The things I really didn't like were I was not a big fan of Coke or crack, but I did them. No, I didn't like them either. I love the way you described heroin too. Later, you were like, it finally was the warmth that, like, you weren't sure if you were finally getting better drugs or you finally knew yeah. what you wanted from it. Um, and then I have to say, when I started doing drugs, I um, I feel like a, probably a lot of people listening to this would have the same experience. After all those years of like dare classes, I thought that drugs would be better than they were. I was like, wait, this this is it? Like. <laughs> they definitely made drugs sound like they were going to be more transportative yeah. than they were. Right. Yes. Far more mind altering than they actually were. Like I expected like the level of high you see in fear and loathing. Right. Nothing. You know? really and I was like, wait, what? I just nodded out. I mean, okay, fine. I'll keep doing this. But what? Did you do a lot of psychedelics? Um, later, not, not at that point, but like, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I did a lot of mushrooms. That was, that was my psychedelic of choice. The only drug that I, I mean, I, if I took a lot of acid sometimes, th nothing was like fear and loathing, but if I took a lot of acid, I literally, it could, I have had so many conversations about like, how do you get that high? Like I literally don't like a lot of doses high. and DMT. That's yes. It's the DMT. That's the, yeah. I did DMT after I was done doing heroin cause somebody had it and I was like, I just need to try, try this. And it wasn't, it wasn't like fear and loathing and it was quick, which I really right. loved about it. But it was, it was, I liked it. It was <laughs> profound. Um, but after you're dealing and you, and you hooked up with this guy, Hootie, which I don't believe was his real name. No, no, no. I didn't say it was his real name. No, I'm just playing. Of course not. Um, this he is looked like the lead singer. From Hootie, Hootie and the Blowfish. Yes. <laughs> and you were selling with him. Yes. And uh, did, was he on drugs before you met him? He was older than I was and had definitely been doing coke. Um, I don't think that he'd been doing heroin no he definitely hadn't been doing heroin but he'd been doing coke and i mean i think he'd probably tried some other stuff i think he'd been into acid at one point when did you start shooting up um i mean i don't know the year but it's when i was living in new jersey do you remember the first time yeah and it's funny i i this is like a memory i sort of unearthed in the process of writing this because i um I just had to spend a lot of time sort of like thinking about details of things and making sure things were right. But yeah, I, I do remember the first time. I don't remember if I thought it was amazing, but I remember some of the circumstances around it. And I remember I, um, tell us the story, tell us the story. Come on. Um, I mean, so I was in, I was in my, shitty apartment in new brunswick like when i say shitty apartment like yo this had this was like people would joke that they felt like a cockroach coming in because you would go down this like long dark unlit hallway and then there was um apartments on either side 
and the walls were so thin that somebody drunkenly fell through one, like the Kool-Aid man, and like just literally burst into right. one of the bedrooms, and it never got fixed. <laughs> there was just this fucking hole in the one room, and then a door like six feet later. And like the radiator like spewed black ash. Um, and, you know, there was this huge gap underneath the door. You could just feel the wind blowing in. Right. Um, it, it, it was, you know, a genuinely not good apartment, but I liked the location. And so this was, the, I think, the first place I got on my own. And, um, and I was in there and I was, you know, I'd been dating Hootie by that point. And um, I think we'd gotten in a fight or something, but I was, I was alone at my place and, um, you know, someone helped me shoot up and, you know, it was on some, I don't know, dirty mattress in the back room or in the front room. Depends what you consider the front of that apartment, I guess, but yeah. Yes. And did it, did you start shooting up regularly after that? Were you always shooting up? Yeah, I really, you know, this is also something I think a lot of people will relate to. I mean, I really like the needle part itself. It's like science fiction. Like you can put this thing and then it rushes into you. It's like, it's, it's like superhuman. I mean, and I think figure skating is superhuman too. Like I think that there's something, I, I like that about a needle. I also liked how real it was and how like that I was, I mean, it's like embarrassing to think about it now, how, how much I enjoyed, I don't know, the ritual uh, and also just like, that now I was making this decision to go this far with this thing. Whereas when you're snorting heroin, you're, it, it's like, well, I'm just snorting it. And once you're shooting it, you're making this decision that you don't turn back from. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think I also felt some sort of like, I don't know, weird sense of accomplishment and like finding the vein and like doing this objectively difficult thing correct like you know the pseudo medical operation yeah, yes i don't know i think that was part of it i don't know i haven't um i haven't spent a lot of time in recent years unpacking that well that's what this show detail. is for so let's unpack <laughs> let's unpack it um and that's when i feel like your story gets nuts right because that's when, and i i'm, I'm going to talk about this as well as i can but that's when you got into the sex industry and I thought that the writing around that was like powerful. Really, can I read a section from the book? Yeah, sure. All right. Um, ay, it's, I, it's like when I heard you read this, I like, was like, I gotta. Okay, the pay was not great. We took home no more than $150 an hour and it was often a very full hour. There were rollicking bachelor parties, adventurous couples looking for a third, and shy nerds who just wanted a woman that wouldn't say no. But that was only some of the calls. There were also the calls in fleabag motels with married men who cried the whole time. The calls with men who would demand head for an hour straight, unable to come after all the coke they'd done, and threatening to call and complain if you didn't comply. The men who insisted on keeping you there for eight or more hours just staring in silence at your naked body without having sex and insisting they would not pay till they were good and ready to be done. The men so old they were incontinent and would soak the bed in urine, accidentally peeing on you and in you before asking for a blowjob. The men who wanted you to put your hair in pigtails and pretend to be a child. The ones who wanted to pretend it was rape. Um, because it's just, 
it's rough, first of all, and I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through it. And it kind of, when I'm reading it, I'm kind of hearing what you said a minute ago about you did drugs because you didn't really want to live. So how did this, and, and you also, actually a paragraph before that talked about doing the sex work as a means for control. So how do these things, I mean, like, I, I went to see Jerry Stahl the other night do a reading, you know, the guy who wrote Permanent Midnight. Okay. Um, and he said in the reading that he knew he was a successful writer when he was writing things that he wouldn't tell anybody and that, that made him squirm. And it makes me squirm to read that in front of you. So how comfortable are you listening to it? Um, it's that is weird it, it it will probably always be just deeply weird to hear any passages of that read back of any part of the book read back at me somebody quoted part of the book a much you know much lighter part sorry at me the other day and i was <laughs> I like wow that's kind of surreal um but yeah you know one of the one of the things that is interesting about hearing it read back or even reading it back on my own um is that there are some pieces of this that if you interrogated me on them now, I, I would have a really hard time answering some of these questions because I so purposely forget these things. Right. And this took a lot of concerted effort to literally, like part of this writing process was literally just sitting there remembering. And this was, I started in 2020 and continued through 2021. So this was in like the height of the pandemic. I was staying for part of this with um, two of my close friends who live in Austin and I was in their spare room and then um, for some of the really dark chapters I was staying in this like little shack across the street that I was renting um, and it, I mean it was literally like a garden shed that had that somebody had put plumbing in um, and it was a cute little place but like I now think of it as like the place where I just sat there and unearthed this horror stuff remembered this shit you know and it's stuff that, you know, I know, I know in my head, obviously, but I just, um, I so, I've, I've learned to forget or to, you know, to bury it enough that I'm not constantly thinking about it, obviously, and it takes me some effort to remember it. Like, you know, I, I have completely lost track of how many times I was, you know, raped or sexually assaulted in some way. And I know that there's some of them that are mentioned in there, but, um, you know, even those, like, I know that there's things I've just buried and don't remember. And this was like a concerted, dark digging process. And it was literally sitting there alone in this shack, just replaying parts of my past in my memory until I remember other parts of it and going down like Facebook rabbit holes to be right. like, oh, this guy's friends with this guy. Oh, I remember that guy, that horrible thing happened or whatever. Um, and so it's very weird when people read things back to me like that. Cause like, if you'd asked me to list all the worst tricks, I couldn't off the top of my head have spit those out. But when you're reading them, I'm like, oh yeah. I remember I that, guy. that guy. I, yeah. <laughs> right. It took a lot of memory like to get there though. And what do you think do you think the reason, why do you think you were willing to do the work, do sex work in that, at that point? Cause you're dealing drugs. You, you're still, are you still in school at that point? 
off and on. Right. Like do like a semester on, a semester off. Like. That's the craziest thing about your story. It's like you're in this situation, you're doing school, you're fucking this competitive figure skater, and then it's like, bang, you're in Cornell. Like it's just, and then you're in prison. It's like, it's so many different lives kind of converging. And, it, and it's really, it's unusual for me. You know, you remind me, to be honest with you, I went to this very nerdy school and you remind me of somebody that I went to high school with. Like you have this very, I, I do not get that very often. It is not often that someone tells me I remind them of someone they went to high school with. Well, I went to, I mean, I, I think you're very, very smart and there's a lot of information compressed. You know what I mean? That's what I get from sitting with you and reading you and listening to you. Um, let's talk about how, because I'm not Oprah Winfrey here. I, I can't imagine it felt good to be in that situation. And it was, you broke up with Hootie and his mother was like, you got to go back to school, right? Um, I mean, she suggested that I could try to transfer, which had not really been in my thought. Like, I just wasn't thinking about that. And she said that and I was like, yeah, that would be, you know, that would be the thing that will sort of you know, get me out of this. I don't, I didn't mean like, oh, that'll be the thing that'll get me sober. That wasn't. No, it'll solve my problems. Just meant like it would, I'd have, I get, I get away from the end of this relationship that, you know, I I was pretty devastated about that ending. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just have a direction. Before we even get there, what got you into the sex work in the first place? Exactly. Um, I mean, I started working at strip clubs right? and, um, you know, and then it was one of the girls I was at the strip club with had been doing foot fetish parties where guys, you know, pay to lick your feet. Wow. And I did some of those and then, you know, ended up, um, I don't remember where I met the person that connected me to to the escort service I was doing in New Jersey but um you know just sort of was like one thing led to another um although actually I guess previously when I was living on the street I'd been doing street sex work too so that that wasn't when I was doing it in New Jersey that wasn't the first time did you feel like I mean, you came from this ridiculously good home with high achieving parents and parents who wanted so much for you. Like, what was like, was there a sense of rebellion in all that? And and even like the living on the street, sex work on the street, uh, stripping, all of these things, was, was rebellion a part of it? I mean, I don't think that was ever a primary thing. I think it was, in some cases, an added bonus, a nice little fuck you on the end. Um, But I think a lot of it was more that I was just in a very self-destructive place. And, you know, a lot of this fed into that, but in terms of the sex work, I think um, that was the thing that I saw initially as as a path to more independence. And... um, you know, I also felt like this was something that I had control. Despite being a young female in a, you know, world that is, you know, I think even more so then, you know, run by men, I felt like 
that this was something where I could be in control. Right. And, and after you left New Jersey and you got into Cornell, you always wanted to do, you wanted to be in an Ivy League school. You always had intense ambitions, um, which you're accomplishing still. I mean, you, every, every, you know, every defeat is just another kind of uh, victory in the mail, uh, basically. Was that the last of the sex work before Cornell? Yes. I did not do sex work after I was at Cornell. No, and and I that was something that I because I went to school in Ithaca for years and Honestly, uh, that would have just been logistically challenging. What to do sex work in Ithaca? <laughs> yeah, there's like I mean, if you do sex work in a small town like that, you're gonna run into like your professors and shit. Well, what about like how how quickly did you get back into drugs in Ithaca? And I never found that the only good drugs I ever found in Ithaca was good acid and really good weed. Like I wasn't finding heroin in Ithaca. Were you hanging out with the townies? No, I wasn't. Hang- I, got, I got kicked out of Ithaca quickly. I didn't hang out with anybody. I hang out with a bunch of hippies. I had a band and I left. Um, <laughs> but uh, break it down because like that's where you get arrested with four ounces of heroin, which I've never even seen. So tell us about your Cornell experience and getting and had you had you kicked heroin or did you didn't go there with a habit? I did not go there with a habit. I. Um, took Suboxone and detoxed on my friend's couch before I, you know, after I got into Cornell and I knew I was going to be moving, I detoxed and then, you know, moved. Um, And to the extent that I could, I was still trying to get high whenever I could, whenever I was visiting New Jersey or... You'd get dope. Yeah. Um, What were you studying in Ithaca at Cornell? I don't remember what major I declared that first semester, but at Rutgers I'd been doing um, genetics and philosophy double major, and that didn't quite translate at Cornell. Like I think I couldn't, um, I think I couldn't do both as a transfer and graduate on time. So I ended up majoring in English, but that first semester it was not clear what I was going to. I think I was still taking like genetics and philosophy classes for the most part. And, and in Ithaca, you weren't, you were only doing dope if you went to Jersey. So like what? Initially, yeah. And then, um, you know, and then I met a dude who was, um, I don't know. Selling, Todd. Yeah. Yes. Was that his name? Mm-hmm. Okay. I have to, I have to like not say names in, because I never remember whose name has changed and who is isn't, but that one is real. That's his real name. And... Did you introduce him to dope or was he like, Oh, I definitely did not. introduce. So he was already a junkie when you met him. Yeah, he was not. I think at that point, I don't think he had a habit at that point, but he had in the past off and on. And, um, at that point I think he was more into crack. Um, but we, the first time we hung out, we, you know, smoked and, um, and then I think did mushrooms maybe the next or maybe that first time. Yeah. I once I once met this girl like I had stopped using heroin and and she I didn't realize that she was had been a heroin addict and she had stopped using heroin and we met one night and we did ecstasy together and we hooked up and then in the morning she was like oh we should just do dope and it was like done you know what I mean like we wound up on methadone together and I that was really like what propelled me into serious drug addiction so when you meet a guy who's kind of like there and you're there it's kind of like like a jump starting of a battery or something. Yeah, I mean, he was older, so he'd been doing, he'd been running in those circles a lot longer. How much older than you was he? 
He must have been like 14 years older. Wow. Yeah. And so it, it jump-started your addiction. Um, yes, but I wouldn't... That, fe- that feels like that's placing more of the blame on him than is fair. Right. Um, and I, he was kind of a scumbag, too. I mean, I try not to be an asshole. Well, and if what I've inferred from the writing about this fellow Todd is that he's kind of a scumbag. I'm honestly not even sure his mom would disagree with you. So. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's where it gets... Even, I mean, like, Dopey Nation, like... I know this has been a very heavy conversation, but this is where it gets much heavier, where you're like, I want to kill myself. And he's like, go jump. And you do. Yes. And Ithaca's like, like the suicide capital of New York. Did you know that when you were there? Like that that it's was a thing? It's hard not to. Okay. It's hard not to know that. Right. But I was so new, I didn't even know where. And I had to ask someone to drive me to, you know, the nearest gorge. Um, and yeah. I did. I jumped. You know, they said it was a 98-foot fall. Cops told me that at the time. And I think the fire department said it around that time in a press release or something. Um, But I recently went back there and was looking at that bridge. And I was like, this is not 98 feet. This is cops exaggerating numbers again. Right. (laughs) And if you you had known the actual uh, distance, you probably wouldn't have done it there. I probably wouldn't have done it there because I... You didn't want you didn't want to live, right? I, I, and I especially wouldn't have done it with the risk of, um, you know, not living and just being like seriously injured or something. My, you know? we, whenever we drive across a bridge on vacation, my daughter asks, "Do you think I would die if I jumped off this bridge?" And then every time, and then my wife always says, "You know, they did a study on people who jumped off bridges that survived and." 99.9% regretted jumping off the bridge when they're interviewed. Like that's, she says this every time we drive out of New York. Um, did you feel that when you lived? Not at the time. You wish you had died. Yeah. I was just mad I didn't die. Yeah. And how long did that last? Until I didn't think about it anymore. Like, there wasn't a moment at which I started, like, I can think of, like, being like, oh, wow, I'm so... Happy to be alive. Yeah. Happy I didn't die. I don't know. I'm still kind of existential about it in that I'm like, well, I don't know. I'd be dead. Like, I wouldn't have an opinion here. I, I agree. You know? I agree. I mean, she always says that, that the people who attempted suicide were so grateful that it wasn't over when they didn't die. That's just something that she said. And you're someone who did that and then you didn't die and you and you don't regret it. I don't sit around thinking about like, geez, I'm so grateful that I that I lived. Um, and on the one hand, I hope that since then I have that I've done good things with my life, you know, that I've taken the dark parts of my past and done something positive with them and, and lived a life that is in that way been impactful. And those things wouldn't have happened if I died. So yeah, that's true. But at the same time, I don't sit around and think about, geez, I'm, I'm so grateful that I lived because to me, the flip side of that is asking myself all these sort of what ifs and could have been like, where would I be if I didn't do dope? Where would I be? if Do I you ask those questions ever? No, I really don't. And I think that's part like the, the fact that I just, don't go there, I think is part of why, um, you know, part of why I don't sit around and think a lot about, like, am I so grateful that I 
didn't die. Lived, you right. Know? Um, also, honestly, like I'm just generally an anxious human. I'm I have quite enough anxiety about like today. I don't need to also start like coming up with ways to obsess about alternate yesterdays. No, I get it. I get it. Do you ever feel suicidal still? No, I um I think there there were definitely, you know, I take that back. The beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. I I was that was a really dark time for me. I mean, it was for a lot of people, obviously. Um for me, and I wrote about this at the time. I did an opinion or I did an essay on on this um you know, the fear of of lockdowns, which I mean, I was you know, I'm pro-science. I was not opposed in theory to whatever is needed to, you know, whatever seemed to be needed at that point to deal with the pandemic. But I was like on a personal level, very scared of them because it felt like prison, like solitary, like being told you have to stay in this space, you know? And, um, and obviously it wasn't, especially in Texas, nearly as strict as... I thought it would be but I don't know it felt it felt so apocalyptic yeah and I you know that it that was that was definitely a dark time for me mainly I think because I got so panicked about this idea of being you know more or less like imprisoned in your house like which I know I I've been in prison I know it's not the same you have a phone, you have the internet, I had a job, like, I was mostly staying with my best friend for the first few months of the pandemic, you know, we had, like, her dog, like, had all these things you don't have in prison, but there was just something that snapped in my mind about being told you're stuck here just like, you know, just like how prison tells you you're stuck here and you can't leave, and I don't know, that just really awakened this sort of like deep-seated panic for me. And Trauma. I was just really losing track of time. And um, I, I felt, looking back, I've, it that whole time period feels like extremely unhinged for me. And to a degree that I didn't think was possible. You know, I didn't think that this long later that I would go to that dark place or that I would be that sort of um unhinged about it but you know I mean I I didn't I mean I I didn't obviously I didn't um kill myself I didn't you know start doing drugs like um and I think part of that was because you know I know that there's people that care about me that would be hurt by that and um, part of that is because of, you know, the work that I do, like writing about prisons. Prison, things were so dire in prisons, and there were so many prisoners and their families reaching out to me with, you know, these just heartbreaking, really dire stories. And it felt so urgent to be able to... Be a conduit for them. Yeah, to be able to tell those stories and, you know, help hold these prisons accountable for how badly they, how incompetently some of them were handling the pandemic. Right. Um, I can't, I can't imagine like what you're uncovering, you know what I mean? In terms of like, and also the, the advocacy work, like, like 
these are people that need help and you were one of them and now you get to serve your community, which is kind of what I, I, I like to pretend that's what I'm doing. Really what I'm doing is I always wanted to have a talk show and I get to have a talk show and I want it to be entertaining and I want it to be fun. Like that's my agenda because I'm self-centered and sick. Um, but how did you wind up with four ounces of heroin? How did that happen? That's a lot of heroin. Um, you know, I was dating a guy who had um, connections for to get fronted more than I could have otherwise afforded. Were you selling the dope in Ithaca? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the heroin scene in Ithaca like? I mean, I can't speak to now, but then you know there was a there was a subset of the towny druggy scene that that did heroin, but it, it wasn't um, it wasn't big. Like it was it was a decent number of people. Um, prices were jacked up. It was like twice what it would cost in the city. And, um, you know, and, and yeah, I don't know. That's, that's what it was then. I don't, I don't really know what it's like now. Did you feel at home on the town? You know what? I, in, in, I know you'll understand this. Like so many of my friends from then have died. Yeah. And like, not then they died later, you know, in the past few years. Well, I'm sure back then it wasn't fentanyl, and now it is. Um, and uh, what was I going to say? Did you feel like you fit in on the townie scene in Ithaca? I mean, more than I felt like I fit in at Cornell. Yeah? Because you're obviously like a Cornell brainiac, but you're hanging out in the in the junky townie world. And the townie world is like throwback, right? Yeah, but I mean, I definitely didn't fit in with your average Cornell student either. Right, because you're like... You have this. I've been through a very different set of experiences also by the time I got to Cornell. Like, because I'd already been living on the street before that. And had done this crazy sex work. Like, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, I could have done this whole interview just about the juxtaposition between being a sex worker on the street and an Ivy Leaguer. Like, how weird was it to show up at Cornell or were you like, I knew I should be here? Like, I found that juxtaposition and then from there to prison. Like, it's fucking crazy. Um, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't even have an answer to that. Is that a question? No, it's just you know, it's an observation. <laughs> it's, it's a statement with a question mark on the end, isn't it? <laughs> well, you're a better journalist than I am. So I mean, like, how? What? At what point did you fit in, or you never fit in in the Ivy League in your mind? No, I never. I I never fit in. I mean, did I, you ever go back and talk there? I just could see that. I think you have to go back yeah. and talk at no, Cornell. No, I have. I, okay. I, well, and when I got out, I lived there. You know, and when I when I got out of prison, I I definitely became a part of the community. Um, you know, townies, but not the townie druggies, because um, I was doing journalism and I was on some. I was on a couple nonprofit boards. Like I had a network of people I knew there, and it felt like. Um, you know, like I had community, like I had a place that felt like home. Um, but yeah, I still, I still go, I still go back some and I'm actually going back in a few weeks. That's cool. I haven't been back to Ithaca since like 1994. I was there like two months ago. Cause I said, I went to the, to that bridge and looked at it and I was like, it's not that, <laughs> not as tall as they said. Right. And how, I mean, like this whole interview also should have been about prison. Uh, you, one of the, one of the exciting parts of the book to me, cause again, I'm very shallow. And the exciting part to me was where you show up in prison with all these drugs in your ass. 
Like how much, how many, how much drugs did you have in your ass when you got to prison? Probably a couple grams. I mean, that's pretty exciting. Huh. And, uh, in and jail, this was jail. Right. In Tompkins there, County. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and how long did you stay high? I mean, a couple days. And you shared, yes. you had friends. Yes. I, I did after that. Right. <laughs> and they were, were they loyal to you after that? I mean, it, you know, there was always some catty fighting. It was, you know, it was only like six or eight people in that cell block, though. So, um, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot to be loyal or disloyal to, you know. Some people were just, I don't know, cattier. And um, some people were always just kind of calm. Like, it's not the same as if you had, like, a, you know, 120-person dorm where there's real politics and loyalties and shit. Like, it just doesn't translate the same with six or eight people. And this is probably not fair, but in my observations as a reader, it seems like, and this is, you're probably not going to like this comment with a question at the end of it. Um, <laughs> like, you really got rehabilitated in prison. You know what I mean? Like you, you kind of found your way out of your situation in your time in prison, like through navigating politics, through navigating people, through the, 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 the counselors like Mr. S guy and all, and all of these scenarios, it seemed to do well for you. You know, you, you actually can't, no, not, not true. No, I think, I mean, I think almost anyone who, who, who does better after prison does better in spite of prison, not because of it. I'm not saying it's you because know? of prison. I'm just saying like you, I mean, I'm not saying you needed to go either, but do you think that the experience of getting taken out of the world, put into correctional facility and coming out was good for you? No, no, no. So here's the thing. I, I think that, I think that I was at a point where I was ready to be done with it. And you know, whether that had been... Done I, with drugs, you mean? Yeah, I think, I think at that point, I think rehab would have worked. I think, you know, prison. I think moving to a different city. Like, I, like, literally, I was at a point where I was done and any number of sort of changes could have been the thing that would have set me in a different direction. And I think if I'd gotten arrested a year earlier, I absolutely would have kept doing drugs in prison because, you know, I could get heroin delivered to my bedside in prison. Um... So I don't think that I got sober because of prison. Um, and I also think that prison is in so many ways just damaging to one's mental health and traumatizing and um, does not do much to set people up for life after prison. So, I mean, so was prison good? I mean... I didn't say it was, that I, wasn't I've my question. To, my question wasn't, is prison good? My question was, like, I guess I also really want to know in terms of, like, when you stopped using, you stopped using in prison, how do you think that psychic change happened? Because I'm not implying that prison was good. I'm only implying that might have been good for you to have been removed from the world for a period of time. Um, As a reader. Well, and I'm just saying, I think that there's any number of other things that could have achieved that goal that would have been far less destructive. And traumatic. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, what was, what was the question here? The question was, yeah. describe what really 
presented the psychic change of finding recovery in prison? So I think, um, I mean, there's a few moments, moments of clarity, if you will. <laughs> um, but one of them, I think, was when the guy I was dating at that point came in to visit. And, Alex. Uh-huh. And the guy you married in prison. Yeah, because I was a dumbass. Why um, did you marry him in prison? Um, I married him in, in jail. Okay. Um, I only did two nights in the tomb, so I'm not experienced. <laughs> um, so I, why did I, you know what, for that one I am just going to say read the book. That is like a longer answer. Um, but, but yes, so where, where were we going with Alex? We were talking about the I'm psychic sorry. change. I'm so fucking tired right now. <laughs> um, I am. Um, Is this the worst interview you've ever had? Am I the worst interviewer that's ever interviewed you? Interviewer, but we have now been talking about like dark shit and trauma for long enough that my brain is getting a little fuzzy. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're, no, but now we're getting to the good part where you get out <laughs> of it. <laughs> now we're, we're, we're in the home stretch. It's all downhill from here. How do you think, because you stopped using drugs, what year? In 2010. And, and what do you think, like, I love, I mean, like, by... So, so I think that um, there's a few things. One of them was when Alex came, you know, continued to come visit me. And um, he was, one of the times in particular that I remember, there was a few times like this, but there was one in particular where, you know, he came in trying to tell me that he wasn't high. And, like, I know the difference, obviously. And he's got clear track marks, like pretty fresh ones, that he tried to tell me were because he fell into a pot plant. How does he even say that? Like, how does that quote... But you know you, we both said shit just as I know, but you that's know you just... You did too. But it's such know? a weird... I would never say I fell into a pot plant. Maybe, like, I got cut or I picked a scab. Like, maybe right. I would say that. I wouldn't say I fell into a pot no, plant. We, we, it was a particular... It, it, a por- it was I, was, a I was mauled by a porcupine. Uh, right, exactly. There are... Like, that would have been, I would have been like, okay, at least points for creativity. Right. You know? At least there's points. But, but I was like, wow, that you, there's, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, the pot plant that attacks you only on your veins. Cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was sitting there watching him clearly high, telling all the same ridiculous kinds of lies that, you know, that we all tell to try to cover up being high. And I was just like, that is embarrassing. And I don't want to be that anymore. Like, I don't, I don't want to be lying to people that care about me and just embarrassing myself I, like it was seeing it sober from the other side that I was like wow I don't I'm done with this I don't I don't need to be this anymore and there was a few different moments like that but that was one that definitely stood out and like I mean I found for myself when I got sober like I think I had just hit a point where I just I had read somewhere about aging out of addiction and I was much older than you were when I got sober and I wasn't in prison. Do you think it was your, your age yeah. played a part of it? Mm-hmm. I was 26 at that point, which is around the time that that starts to happen, that people can start to age out of addiction. I know that wasn't true from you, from what you just said. No, I didn't get, I, I didn't but age statistically, out. Statistically, that is also the age at which people start to age out of crime and, you know, addiction often goes hand in hand with that. Um, I think I'm just historically incredibly immature. So maybe I, at 41, I was kind of 26 in some way. But yeah, I do think that was part of it. I mean, that's, I think that's part of why I was ready to be done with it, you know, is that I had gotten to a point where, um, 
you know, things had just been bad enough for long enough and I was ready to be done with it partly because I was, you know, aging out of that. And I mean, I guess I probably was at a point where I was ready to stop being so aggressively self-destructive. Well, I'm glad. And, uh, and it's, I mean, like I love the book and I, I really recommend corrections and ink. And, uh, I'm sorry. Like I'm usually like a, such a top notch interviewer and I'm sorry. Like, I don't think I, I, I don't, I don't think I was the CNN today for you. (laughs) So I want to apologize to you for that. Um, and I want to thank you though for coming here and unearthing horrible stuff. Do you? How do you feel now? How do you? Do you feel joy being on this book tour? Do you feel joy being this accomplished writer who gets to advocate for people in prison? It's very surreal right now. Where's your joy? Tell me where your joy is, please. I, that's not usually part of Dopey, but I want to know from you. Where do you? Where do you find joy? So, um, in general, I. I run, and, and and that is something that... Did you run this morning? Um, no, I only did, like, well, I did, like, two miles. Where'd you go? To Central Park. Nice. Did yeah. you have fun? Yeah, and it's so nice, uh, since I live in Houston, um, it's so nice to be, like, I don't melt outside. Like, I can run here, which is nice. Um, but I had to cut it short because I had an interview, so, I mean, I'll, I'll try again tonight or tomorrow morning. Um, You're back-to-back back today. Yeah, yes, which is part of why, like, you know, you asked do I, how am I feeling about this tour, and I feel like this is something I will, um, I don't know, I'll feel more about afterwards, but in the moment, it's just, it's, it's so much. But there's been a few um, really cool moments so far, one of which was when I, on, on pub day, I had a book event in Houston, and um, Chris Tomlinson, who's in the end of the book, was the one interviewing me at you know the indie bookstore in Houston, and one of the people in the audience who stands up at the end raises his hand and you know says he's a prison dentist, and I'm like, oh fuck, like this guy's gonna hate me. He's about to tell me how terrible I am for writing bad things about the prisons and all, and no, he he wanted to tell me how much he appreciated my work and. Um, how much he appreciated me writing about how bad the dental care had been because he was like, you know, we didn't like not giving people dentures either. And it was so nice to, you know, have someone writing about it and how they had always looked forward to my stories. And I mean, that was just, that was a really cool moment. That is awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure another one of the the most amazing moments was where I read you back that very, very depressing <laughs> part of your book. Um, it's so weird. It It is so weird to be quoted back at myself. Listen, you, you're amazing, and you've done something really, really important for a lot of people, and I really appreciate you coming on and reliving some dark shit and uh, and facing it. You know, I do. I appreciate you. It's good to, good to meet you. And good to meet you, too. Right on. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So that was author figures. She's a lot like you. She's an author. She's not an equestrian and she doesn't give advice. And you weren't a prisoner. No. But besides that, you guys are like two peas in a pot. Well, there were some similar threads in sort of like the overachieving. Right. And then Ivy League. Really? Did you Ivy League? No. Where'd you go to college? I went to USC and I dropped out and went back and dropped out and went back and dropped out and then finished at the new school. I, I took harmonica lessons at the new school. I remember that. All right, get get, okay. get to your notes. All right, all right. So yeah, I thought it was interesting. Like when she talked about, or you asked her a question about 
the through line from like figure skating to drugs, like sort of that, like the intensity with which you have to have to pursue something like figure skating at that level. Um, and that's, I thought that was kind of interesting because I do think that there's something there. Our stories diverge a little bit, you know. Horseback riding and figure skating are very similar in very different ways. Yes. Because they're like both physically intense. Yes. And and like they're like elite kind of sports. Yes. Like usually like people with dough do them. Because they cost a lot of money to do. Like rink fees. Zamboni fees are a real problem. Real killer. <laughs> The Zamboni is like the coolest thing that's I, ever been built. I would, I, you know, sometimes do you ever, why like, do you think they called it the Zamboni? Maybe the person who invented it. Leon Zamboni. Sure. Amazing. <laughs> I, do you ever like fantasize about like, I don't know. Sometimes I fantasize about like running away from home and like just starting a life, like doing some weird job somewhere and like living in an apartment by myself. And one of <laughs> Zamboni driving. One, yes. I'm like, what if I just moved to some shit town and I was like the Zamboni person? I mean, I think that's incredible. I feel like the, I see you see less figure skating rinks in the world, though. Yeah, probably. Like I, when I was a kid, I mean, we I went to camp in New Hampshire and uh, I'm sure I've talked about it a lot on the show. Jewish uh, camp? No, it wasn't Jewish no. camp, but they had a huge hockey and figure mm -hmm. skating component and just the smell of the bags was so disgusting. Oh, the skate bags yeah. or the hockey bags? Just the gear just Ooh, yeah. smelled Pew. so, it, it, it's yeah. so like uriny and sweaty, mm -hmm. but like that's cause they're fucking out there busting their asses yeah. on the ice. So like, but there was a certain mystique. And then there was also that great Tom Cruise movie, Young Blood. You ever see oh, Young Blood? Oh yeah, I didn't, I you know what you're talking about. You can smell the urine. Was it Tom Cruise? Maybe it wasn't. I don't think it was Tom Cruise. It should have been. But uh, Young Blood, great hockey movie. Fuck, why are we talking about hockey movies? In because it's adjacent to figure skating. Well, I would like to drive a Zamboni. I would certainly like to ride a Zamboni. I think in Young Blood they do. Yeah, that seems fun, right? Z it's probably not as much fun as no, it's we very, think it is. Very it's slow so slow. <laughs> but it's, 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 what else you got? What else you got? Um, okay, so I also, when you guys were talking about DMT, I never did DMT. It's and a yet. <laughs> I, I don't think she did DMT. I, I'm like transfixed with DMT and I'll tell you why. Um, I didn't do DMT in my whole drug using time, but then after I stopped doing drugs, mm -hmm. I was in Narcotics Anonymous mm -hmm. and a friend of mine invited me to his house. I feel like we went drinking or something. Mm -hmm. Like I was drinking in NA for whatever reason. And then he was like, oh, no, he just called me. He told me he got DMT. And I'm like, I'm coming over. And I was like, I was like, I'm doing it, you know? Yeah. Because that was the one thing that, that you like, hadn't done. Well, I hadn't done a lot of things, right. but I really wanted to do DMT because there were classic stories mm -hmm. of uh, Haight Ashbury and Jerry Garcia and, and, and the crew smoking DMT in the mm -hmm. attic of the house. And the way they described it, I was like, this is something I need to try. And um, he would get it off this very Jewish uh, keyboard player. Mm -hmm. And he was in a Grateful Dead cover band called Deadstein. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like a film editor and uh -huh. he always had drugs everywhere. And he was like a minor league chemist, but he always had like, like shattered and weird, like THC compounds and every like psych weird psychedelic mm -hmm. compounds. And, and we would jam with him. He was a sick piano player, 
great, great singer. And uh, I was like, I ran to Alan's house to smoke DMT with him. And, um, and I'm sure I've told this story on Dopey at some <laughs> point, but I'm going to tell it again because you didn't hear it. And uh, we smoked DMT and uh, it, was, it was good. You know, it good. like uh, it lasts for like 15 minutes. What does it feel like? It feels like it's like LSD times a bunch, mm-hmm. but compounded into 15 minutes without really thinking about anything. Like you have this like heightened experience and, and you have hallucinations okay. and you, everything is heightened, but it's not introspective. And so it's not like ketamine where you're just like, you sink. No, right? no. It, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's like kind of the opposite yeah. of ketamine for me. And I mean, I did it one time right? and I wound up looking at a painting mm-hmm. like probably for 15 minutes and the painting danced right? Uh, like to a beat. Mm-hmm. And then... I came down and I got stoned with Alan and we went to uh there's a famous macrobiotic Japanese restaurant. Suen. Right. But the one on the west side. You know, there's one on the east side and there's one on the west side. And well, there was the one forever, which is really close to my house, on thirteenth between university and fifth, but that closed down. Now there's one and then there was one like on the edge of Soho, like on Varick Street or something. That's where we went. Yeah. We went to the one on the edge of Soho. Yeah. But the the one that I always used there's to go to. There's one in the East East Village, yeah. Was the one in the East Village. And so like the come down off of the DMT like lasted forever, but it felt kind of good. It was like that weird sort of twilight post tripping and mm-hmm. we ate macrobiotic food and I felt very like important. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I guess it's good that it doesn't last a long time. I remember like I often had like real weird trips with inanimate objects when I did LSD. And When's the last time you think you did LSD? Oh my God. It was like I was in my twenties. And are you're still tempted to do the Gabor Mate, uh, I mean, ayahuasca tempted in the sense that like under the right circumstances with the right person, like if, Dr. Mate was like, Aaron, let's go. And I'm I've gonna, read your book. I'm and gonna, you, are the, you are my candidate. <laughs> I'm going to oversee your whole experience. Then I would probably do it. I don't think I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, if you were like, oh, let's go do ayahuasca. If I, I would, was like, let's go to Washington Square Park and buy some ayahuasca. No, I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't want to do it? <laughs> no. All right. What else you got in the Carrie Blake in your notes? Um, uh, 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 I, 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 that offends me somehow. Like why would I actually have some ayahuasca right well, here? Mainly, well, many many reasons. Number one, I wouldn't want to be involved in your relapse. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. But what if it was? What if it was a spiritual uh, journey? If if somebody was going to guide, if if you were like, look, Doctor Mate is going to take you and I, and he's going to take us on this journey, then I would say yes. Yeah. Well, I'm not going on any okay. journey anytime All soon. Right. Um, I need a, a few more years. <laughs> I liked what you guys talked about like with the ritual like how much of and I thought I was thinking about that like there was so much of drug use for me that was about the ritual because I had my life so compartmentalized so you did so compartmentalized so the ritual of drug use sort of mirrored the ritual of compartmentalizing the different parts of my life too so I really related to that um and then I thought about the thing that you guys talked about like aging out of addiction like the there is that thing of like the adolescent brain really doesn't mature until you're like in your mid to late twenties. And obviously many people use drugs long past that. But I do think that the, I don't know. I think that like 
I don't know. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that. I I feel like there was something. Well, I was going to say, like, I think that maybe there was some part of like my brain finally like maturing a little bit that made it easier for me. I know. But how old were you? 29 28 29 she was like 27 i was 41 yeah i know (laughs) you know but i think like i'm probably just immature maybe but were you hardcore that whole time like when was like because i I know like towards i was i was hard i was hardcore fucking the whole time no i was hardcore from 24 till I don't know. Fucking. No, I guess you were. Yeah. yeah. What am I talking about? I, I was, I was pretty bad until probably I, 2011. So like, what is that? I, I, if I got sober, I, I guess the last three or four years I was not using heroin. Right. That's what, I guess that's yeah. what I mean yeah. is that you had aged out of it enough where you were like, I probably have like 10 or 11 years since I've done heroin right. now, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. And then I think I even have, and I only did it the one time. So right. I think I have like 13 years since I was addicted to heroin, right. which I feel very good about. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> um, so yeah, the ritual, I, I mean, I think that the, the thing in this talk that was very hard for me was the suicide, mm. um, that she attempted the suicide mm-hmm. and wasn't particularly grateful when she didn't die. Right. That was, that was right. Right. That was hard. I, um, I mean, I think I, I certainly felt that when I was younger and attempted suicide, I did not feel grateful that it didn't work. When did you attempt suicide? When I was a kid, like with Tylenol. How many did you take? I don't, I have no idea. How old were you? Young. Like this is like pre heroin. So like, how old are we talking? Somewhere between the ages of eight and 13. Right. So I was probably, I was probably like nine or 10. See, I think you're incredibly well adjusted considering the life you've lived. You know what? It's really, so, you know, like, so many people say that. It's, it's, it's like, it's pretty amazing <laughs> if you well, think about it. I mean, yeah, yes. And also like you're meeting me at a time in my life when I'm not as crazy. I had this, maybe this isn't a discussion for the show, but I've had this discussion. You should never say that. I know. Okay, I'll just say it anyway. So, like, my husband and I were having this discussion. He's like, sometimes I wish I had, like, known you then, like, because you were, like, just because of, like, (laughs) yeah, like, that it would be more fun. And I was like, no, I'm like, you don't, because you get all the other shitty parts that come along with that. Do you know what I mean? So... Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. I mean, people that it's, it's, this is not, you know, this is because I've had like, you know, 19 and a half years of recovery. Well, I mean, it's like the reason I don't take ayahuasca, the Mm -hmm. reason I don't smoke DMT, the reason I don't use uh, marijuana Mm -hmm. recreationally is because I've cultivated a life that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I am not certain that I could still enjoy my life with any of those things in it. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I've never experienced using drugs and, and having a nice life at the same mm-hmm. time. And I don't want to risk it. Right. I like the life I have. Right. Like, I mean, and that's why, like I had that old, you know, I'll relapse when I'm 75, I'll smoke bong hits and listen right. to the almond brothers because I'll have cultivated enough life that I can unreal a little bit of it then. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not in any hurry to unreal or unravel my life. Mine's a little bit different. Like I don't feel like I feel pretty confident that I could, do a hallucinogen and it would not derail my life. I never, the, I, I mean, you should never say never, but I feel pretty confident in that. My thing is that like what I'm bummed about, and we talked about this a few weeks ago after surgery, like I won't get that relapse. Like if I, 
I feel like I used right. up all my opiate receptor fun points. Like that fucking sucks. Like if I, at 90 years old, I'm like, let me go out in a blaze of fentanyl glory. It's not probably going to be like that for me, which is good. But then it's also kind of like, wow, that's sad. Well, there's something sad about it. And we never released that episode, I'm realizing. So nobody oh. even heard about your surgery, oh. your experience with opiates. Because it didn't record. No, it recorded. recorded. We just didn't oh, release it. we didn't it. release it. I don't know why. Don't know. There's something happened. Something else happened. I don't know. All right. It's well, the, that was the dark side episode. Oh, we haven't released that yet. No. Okay. But, but we're going to erase that front. So listen, okay. I'm going to put that talk on Patreon now. Okay. So if you want to hear Erin talk yes. about when she was done with opiates and when she got her thyroid surgery, go to www.patreon.com. <laughs> and what a bummer, what a bummer it was. <laughs> but um, so what you're saying is, I mean, this is a dangerous thing to be saying. Because what you're kind of saying is you're relapse proof. No, I don't think I'm, re I don't think anybody is relapse proof, but I feel like, again, it would have to be under the right circumstances. So here's the million dollar question. Mm -hmm. And like, cause you, and, and spoiler alert, Aaron got her thyroid removed, got a shitload of opiates, didn't really enjoy it at all. So what <laughs> does a relapse look like for you? I mean, a relapse to me would be something like if I chose to do hallucinogens with my husband or in a therapeutic setting, I wouldn't consider that a relapse, Fine, I'm with right? You. Yeah. So a relapse to me would be me. What's a relapse? A relapse would be me doing cocaine. A relapse w for me would be like, I mean, I never had binge drinking, but I guess like if I suddenly started binge drinking, a relapse would certainly be if I started taking opiates recreationally. But you didn't like opiates. Do, do you have a, like, cause you had that dingling, dangling, dingling feeling <laughs> that like, if you did opiates, it would trigger like that you'd like them and that didn't happen. I, I mean, I didn't, I thought that like, no, because I've had a few surgeries. So I knew that like, I wasn't really worried about that being triggered. That said, because I'm aware, I, because of my history, every surgery I've had in the last 19 and a half years, I am very aware of how long I've been taking the opiates, that I'm taking them as directed, that other people know that I'm taking them. Like there's no like secrecy around but it. But I guess what I'm saying is like for me, mm -hmm. right? I don't, I haven't had surgery. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't had an opiate right. in a long time. Uh, and, and, and I think that when or if I get hurt and I need an opiate right. that I'll enjoy it. You now, might. Right, so whatever. <laughs> you you found that you didn't enjoy it. No, but also the last couple of years of my using, I was not enjoying it. Like it wasn't giving me the relief that it used to give me. And that was upsetting it, because I felt. And the other thing too is that, and That's you'll hear this in the Patreon, is that like it makes me, there's something about it that even if I felt a little bit of the physical high, I feel instantly really depressed. It makes me feel, I have it, the association with, with being dope sick like come like that that sort of like association happens so quickly so the second that i feel like oh they've i'm a you know like oh they've just given me dilaudid after surgery and i feel it entering my bloodstream it's like the next thought is like being like the next visceral reaction is being dope sick and i i kicked so many times cold turkey that i just I can't disconnect the two. No, I know what you mean. It's like every time I would 
I mean, that's basically why I stopped using because I knew I couldn't use without getting sick and I didn't want to get sick. No, and there's no way to, there's no way to juggle it. So that's the question, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that there, it's not going to be an opiate relapse, I don't think, because you don't like them anymore. No, I mean, I guess maybe like maybe I would maybe I would go and be like, oh, I'm just going to like smoke a bunch of pot now or something. I don't know. What about crack? You used to love crack. I hated crack. I just couldn't stop doing it. No, I have no desire to ever do crack again. That was the the worst period of my life was that relapse with Jack in the book where we were smoking crack. It was awful. Didn't you smoke crack on a plane in the book? Yeah. Yes. Um, All right. Now I have some questions. We haven't asked Aaron, but like... I don't, I don't need to jump into the ask because no. there's questions I haven't asked you yes. that I've wanted to ask okay. you. The most important question mm-hmm. is like you were at rehab and it came out kind of through a bunch of different stories with Elliot Smith and mm-hmm. Rick James. Yes. And I don't think we've talked enough about that. We haven't really talked about it at all. I, we should have led with that. <laughs> so like what the fuck was that what was that like we never even had a personal conversation about it really yeah we have not enough all right <laughs> so yeah i mean you know i went to rehab in la and and they're both dead now which is why de- she can yes. talk about it uh went, went to rehab in la and there were a lot of musicians that came through this rehab and um was they- flavor flave there too no i worked with flavor Flav i know that's my that's my next yeah <laughs> um so they were both there. They were both really nice. They were both, I mean, I was only there for a couple days with Elliot Smith because he was like ready to leave. And then he came back to like some outpatient groups. How soon after was he dead? Um, two years. Did you talk to him at all? After? Not, no, at any point. Oh, in rehab. Yeah. What would you talk about? Were you like, yo, that the dope was really fire. I used to smoke crack no. on a plane. No. What did you talk to Elliot Smith no, about? No, I mean, we, we talked about like, well, we, a lot of us talked about music, not even in relation to him, just music in general. Everybody like, there. Elliot like, Smith, you've got a really good voice, but your shit is so <laughs> depressing. I love his shit. But, you know, and Rick James was very paternal. You talk to Rick James a lot? Yes, he was so, I mean, the first night that I was there. Did he ever I, say cocaine is a hell of a drug? No, you asked me that the first time I was on the show. No, he never said that. <laughs> <laughs> because you guessed that it was the first time that I came on Dopey, which is almost a year ago. You asked me, you were like, is that Rick James? And I said, yeah. And then, but I asked, I didn't ask you like thinking it was Rick James. I asked everybody on the show when they mentioned something, I think of the most outlandish right. person. And it, it was, be. and it turned out to be <laughs> Rick James. And I swear to God, every week since then, because I am the, the, the dude who brings the acoustic guitar to right. rehab. Right. I am that guy. He was, they were them too. I mean, that was the thing. So is that my what, first what, night? What would, what would they play together? I don't even, like, honestly, I don't remember. That I do not remember what they were playing. You don't, did they play Hotel California? No, you asked me that before, too. <laughs> did, they play, no. did they play California Dreaming? No. I don't remember what they played because I was in the deep, like the way this rehab was set up, there were like little bungalows everywhere. And the, this is the, the thing that is funny is that like, so I was in like this main bungalow where the detox was. I met them all outside smoking cigarettes and they all kind of introduced themselves. What kind of cigarettes did they smoke? I don't remember. I was smoking parliaments at the time. Can I tell you that when I've been in rehab, mm-hmm. I knew every smoke every brand that, that every everyone person smoked. smoked yes everyone was just smoking whatever they had a lot of people smoked marlboros i remember in rehab but i had an american spirits people a lot of people had american spirits i found at that them time. to be very frustrating 
American spirit smokers yeah. or American spirits? Both. Because they're slow burning. Uh, it's like. Because there's less chemicals. Uh, Do you know what I used to love? Love. Well, I loved to smoke. <laughs> I sometimes I, I. That's one thing. Like once in a blue moon, I will have a, a cigarette. Really? Oh, yeah. When's the last time you had a cigarette? The last time I had a cigarette was when I was in L.A. for my my book event in L.A. Right after my book came out, my friends had a party afterwards for me. And uh, it was right before the country shut down. It was like one of the last social things. And I had a cigarette. What kind of cigarette? <clears throat> Whatever. I think it was a Marlboro because I bummed one off. A Marlboro somebody. Red? No, it was a gold. Marlboro Gold? I think. I don't, I don't support that. No. Um, so you I don't remember. Like Marlboro Reds. You don't remember a song that, uh, I do, I don't. that they played? I really that's, don't. See, that's really what I wanted to know. I'm sorry. It's Did, really disappointing. They were also there with somebody whose name I, and I'm pretty good with names. I cannot remember his name. Was it Beck? No. He was a country singer who I'd never heard of, but apparently also had a father who was a famous country singer. And it wasn't any, it wasn't like Waylon Jennings or anything. It wasn't anybody It wasn't that, Shooter Jennings? No, it was, it wasn't because I would have known, I would have known that name. I didn't know their names, but I guess in the country world, they were names. Was so, it Lucas Nelson? I have no idea. I really like literally have tried and I never... Because in my journals from that time, I gave everybody like code names in my journal. Like I was like the football player, the country singer. So I'm like, why didn't I write down their fucking names? So he, uh, he's the one who I think actually had the guitar and they were one of the bungalows on this like on the grounds of the hospital it used to be, it had a wider door than all the other bungalows because WC Fields used to come there and dry out. So it was the WC Fields bungalow. And I just remember being in the detox ward and I had grape soda, which funny you mentioned Flavor Flav because that is on his writer when he works. Welch's? The, uh, yeah, Welch's grape soda. It's a quality soda. It's pretty good. Very sweet. <laughs> um, anyway, I can, I can I, taste it right in my mouth. Right I remember now. them just, I just remember like hearing that they were sitting on the porch of the WC Fields bungalow playing music. And I was like, it just felt like this weird version of like druggy camp. It's awesome. <laughs> it was, it was good. I mean, I felt like I was so relieved to be at rehab. I wish that we could uh, get a recording because, you know, Rick James's first band was with Neil Young. Yeah, that's right. The Mina Birds, uh, and they were signed to Motown. Yeah, and I, I just, I think Rick James, like I like Rick James, and I think he he could have done a lot more stuff than he got to do. Mm -hmm. And did he did he talk about burning the woman and keeping her no, hostage and all no, that stuff? No, that's a crazy story. We were he was talking about stuff happening in his life currently. Like you what? know what I mean? I mean, I don't even really remember. I mean, just like whatever or the reason he was there. I mean, he was had Chappelle show come out. You don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. This was in two, this was February of two thousand one. We're gonna we're gonna save flavor of love for another time. Let's do a quick quick okay. ask, Aaron. Okay. Oh, by the way, did you see any of these YouTube videos of uh, the Newport Folk Festival with Joni Mitchell? Yeah, I didn't watch any of them, <laughs> but I've seen them floating around on the internet. Oh my god, I've been I've been watching them this morning and. Uh, I guess she was there. Yeah. Uh, and, and Paul Simon was there. Wow. And, uh, you know, I'm an old white Jewish guy. And uh, I was never a big Joni Mitchell fan. Neither was I. But uh, it's fucking emotional stuff. That blue. What's that? What's that song? The Case of You. No, it's uh, that album, Blue. Blue. Yeah, yeah. 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 
this shit is, I, I'm listening to the, I'm watching all these YouTube videos. Fucking, at the, I guess it's probably the end. I never went to the Newport Folk Festival. Neither have I. My You're, dad I lives know, like uh, there. <laughs> so. But like Paul, Paul Simons with this band and playing the boxer and the whole stage is all these, like whoever they are. I don't, I don't know who they are, but, uh, they're good. Old folk people. <laughs> well, no, they're young folk. It's like Will, oh, Lucas right, Nelson right, right. is Willie Nelson's incredibly handsome son. Yeah. And like, the, and then there's all these very talented people. There's this guy Jerry Douglas who plays, I guess, Dobro really well, and they're singing the boxer, and I and and Paul Simon is eighty, and uh, I I I got very emotional on the train. It's like I'll show you the video. It's very emotional, and the Joni Mitchell shit. She looks like she's like about to die. Right. Uh, but she has this husky voice now, mm-hmm. and it's very emotional. And uh, and and Brandy Carlisle, I guess, is in love with her. Mm-hmm. And Brandy Carlisle is singing all of the high Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. shit. And uh, it's 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 pretty remarkable because yeah. they're about about they're gonna die soon. I know. But anyway, you don't care about Joni Mitchell and Paul Simon. I mean, I don't not care about them. Uh, you, I think it's a clo- you <laughs> closer to not caring. No. But let's go. Let's go to the Ask Aaron. Okay, so this is something that happened. It's not an official Ask Aaron question, but I got uh, a friend of mine had posted, had tweeted something, um, asking if she should preemptively drug test her kid. Okay. And the idea being that if her kid was in a situation where they were offered drugs, they could say, well, my parents drug test me, so I can't. And I said that this was a terrible idea. Hold on, say that again. She basically saw it in this way that if she drug tested her kid, then they wouldn't be lying when they were under peer pressure and they said, I can't use or I can't try that or whatever because uh, my parents drug test me. Right. It's a good excuse for them not to try using. Right. So I said I and pretty much everyone was like this is a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Oh like as a preventative measure. There's no. Every month every month we give you the test. There's no. Yeah their, their child is not there's no indication that their child has ever even tried anything and I'm like it just sets up like such a terrible dynamic between a parent and a child in my opinion yeah and i also i don't think it ever works for a parent to play prison warden with their child it never works no but i mean like i would be interested in testing my kids if they had pinned eyes and were a fucking disaster and telling me they weren't using then i would be like let's do a test you know but then what do you do with that you send them to fucking treatment Mm -hmm. you know you hit the road can't stay here you know what's that thing what's that thing uh you, you don't know? have to go home but yeah. you can't stay here <laughs> i mean if if you know god forbid one of my kids showed signs of opiate abuse mm-hmm. and denied it and they were a fucking wreck nodding out in the house eyes pinned disaster and they denied it i'd be like let's take a test yes but you wouldn't take a test at that point well, just listen to me for a second. You even, I've heard you talk about this before. I don't feel like I've ever talked. About no, this not before. about your kids, but when kids are sent to rehab at a really early age, it doesn't necessarily set them up for success with right. recovery. So, so, so ask Aaron Carr, what do you so, do? So my first line of defense is making sure that they have access to things that will prevent them from dying. Sure. But do you keep the kid in the house if they're fucking wasted on opiates in the house all day? 
fucking stealing from you, stealing the jade pendant. That that's di- I mean that you're talking about like a lot of different lines and boundaries right. there, right? Sure. So yes. yeah, sure. If somebody if if your child is stealing from you, wasted. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get them any help, but I'm saying that like I think that a lot of our traditional forms of rehab do not work well at all and actually have an opposite effect right. with young people. So you're saying you would and unfortunately, as much as we might not like it, there is some having to let them ride it out and just try. Right, right, because, right. And I say this as somebody who recently has been speaking to parents who lost, you know, 16 year old to a fentanyl overdose, you know? Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's horrible. It's like, it's like, I get your point because the, 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 you keep somebody alive because maybe one day they get sober. Well, it's not even just maybe one day. It's not like you're not going to do anything else other than that. It's just that like that's first line of defense. First right. line of defense has to be keeping people alive, bottom line. Right. And then it doesn't mean that you don't do anything else. So is it it's bad just... that my instinct was to kill the cat? Like, does that somehow like play a part in this? <laughs> <laughs> Cat's got to go. You know, I mean, I don't think you should kill the junkie, the junkie child, but I think this is, and maybe like, it's not important. I think, uh, it would be so horrible. And I know I've known lots of old people that were opiate addicts and they were opiate addicts from when they were young people. Mm-hmm. And then they're old people and, and they're, they're the funniest people in the world, old opiate addicts, but they're a mess. You yeah. Know? And it would be so depressing to like, to have your children be on long-term opiates. Of course. That would be the it most. Would be, th- it would be horrible, but I think that there are a lot of things, there's a lot of things that you can do to help them that don't involve being a cop. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I do not, I think, I think drug testing your kids as a preventative measure I agree it's with you. It's a bad idea. Bad idea. But I think I think you might as well test if you're sure. I also think that I really, I was talking to somebody about this recently. I really under, I mean, I don't know. I did not experience peer pressure around drugs. I didn't either. And I'm saying I this, probably pushed peer pressure. I, obviously, like I know I was using, but the people I went to school with didn't know I was using. So there were a lot of people I knew who were using other drugs they might offer me something, but it was no, there was no pressure. Yeah. But just because you and I didn't deal, I mean, I, I, I like, I grew I, up, I went to this school, like this brilliant school yeah. with all these kids, whatever. And I peer pressure, they all did heroin because I, they'd come over. I'd be like, you should try it. You know, so <laughs> I was all a little of my bit friends, like that too. All my friends who never Later. would have tried heroin yeah. did heroin. And like, they didn't, it didn't stick. Thank God. Right. Or then none of them became heroin addicts or died. But like, I, nobody did that to me at all. Right. But I also think that like the whole idea of like peer pressure and like gateway drugs is really so ingrained in like the old methodology of drug education and that dare shit that we grew up on. And I just don't, from my experience having a teenager who I have really, really open communication with about drugs and his friends have been also very open with me, maybe in ways that they aren't with their parents. I think that that doesn't really work. Right. It's just, it's, it's such a slippery slope because you start, you can start the conversation Mm -hmm. in one place and then it ends up 
in a like you can have an open and honest relationship with your kid and things are good it's like when things yeah, when I mean, things get bad it's not that the, it's not that like that you're going to prevent it from ever happening but the thing is is that somebody armed with the example of their parents recovering has a much greater chance of recovering based them. on that model or, or deterring them from ever even getting there yeah like i think i think that's good and i and i i think uh i, I think you're right and i and i like what you're doing here like you're, you're adding some new ideas to the draconian uh world of drug abuse and i think you're i don't know if you guys know yeah you don't know about this but aaron's got a lot of stuff cooking I do. She's I have got, a lot of stuff cooking. And a lot of it is around advocacy and speaking. I've started meeting with Congress representatives about um, drug policy reform and there's legislation coming up before the House. So I'm very, very, very invested in this. And I'm also very invested in how we talk to kids about drugs and how we I'm like Archie Bunker parents. at this point. Kick him out of the, get him out of the house. <laughs> But I think I like I like what you're saying. I think you have some good stuff, mm -hmm. and I think I would like to help you. Yes. And the Dopey Foundation is up and running. Yeah. People are donating to the Dopey That's Foundation. Awesome. There's money in the Dopey Foundation's coffers to support your uh, your plants. Well, that's awesome. I mean, my bit, you know, my big goal is to to influence the way that schools educate children about. We drugs. didn't we didn't talk about the incredible thing that DopeyCon is going to be at all. You, oh, you, I, you interrupted me and I'm, started talking about your fucking scholarship. DopeyCon is coming October 1st. Aaron will be there. I will be there. Cooking it up. With bells on. Well, don't, you don't need to wear bells. For this thing. But, uh, you can hear me when I come in the room there's, like a cat. There's, I mean, like the most incredible thing about, there's a lot of stuff happening. Yeah. A lot of surprises. I don't even know what's happening. Prizes. Cool shit is going down. Yeah. You'll find out as it gets developed. So far, supposedly... <laughs> Brandon Novak has, has said he's on. Nice. Andy Roy said he's coming. Great. Uh, Skinny Vinny wants to come. Yeah. We'll see if he comes. Yeah. Fucking Dr. Drew said awesome. he's coming. Oh, my God. I haven't seen him since I was in rehab with him. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, but most importantly is members of the Dopey Nation will be there. Yay. It will be a full. And, and Katz is going to be cutting pastrami. It's going to be a full fangled fucking thing frolic yes all that Full shit. fangled frolic so thank you ask aaron Carr, and she and aaron's got maybe has a tv show coming out well yes things are there's a lot of stuff cooking wheels are turning in the aaron Carr <laughs> kitchen um all right so thank you for coming on and uh fucking thank you for listening send in an email you know what leave a goddamn fucking review because reviews yes. are very important leave a review and if you're a patreon member and you want to take the writing workshop what should they hit do? up Dave or hit up me. I'm right. one of us. Hit and up tell one of me. us. And the first two people to do it will get the spot. So. Wow. There you go. So get going. And thank you again. And stay strong, Dopey Nation. And fucking toodles for Chris. Toodles. Wanna take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket. Walk around my neighborhood Cause I wanna be so good, so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be so good, so bad
Oh, 